Well, particularly with the line that you gave him. Well, we'll get into that when we get to the Nazi stuff. I, mean, I don't know how else yeah. to put it. We'll get to the Nazi stuff uh, after the, the break. Sigh. The big sigh. <laughs> yeah. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of a homo superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and joining me for the season three premiere is Kieran Gillen, my friend and yours. Well, I don't know. He's my friend. I'm name dropping a little bit. <laughs> I've known Kieran a long time and I've been eager to get him on the pod but he was doing this whole like having a baby thing and so now there's a baby and there was a whole lot of that that had to be taken care of before he could spare two hours to be on my (laughs) x-men podcast kieran how are you today I'm delighted. It's lovely to be here. Like, as you know, I listen to it quite regularly and stop the second people having ideas. Yeah, <laughs> no, I know. I, I, I'm yeah. always like, just hit the forward 15 seconds button like seven times well, and you'll get back to us kibitzing about nonsense. But it's like, it's like you, you asked me before the first issue dropped, so the first part dropped. And I think I, I think I said then that asked me later, because I don't think I told you I was going to be doing Immortal then. I knew. Right. Yeah. I can't remember if I told you or not. Yeah. No, I knew you were doing the book, but we... Basically, it was we we had talked about doing it as the season two finale, which I ended up doing with Zeb about Hellions, which is so good. Thank you, but that made more sense because the book was over, and so mm. we could talk about all of that. With this, I knew that Immortal was coming, but you were like, you really want to see the first issue of <laughs> <laughs> Entirely Fair because I had a feeling it would be a game changer, and of course it was, as it always is when you're writing this character. I would say that you are much like Grant Morrison with Emma Frost, sort of seen as the latter day definitive writer on this character, which is why I have been saving him for when you were available. People have asked to do Mr. Sinister. Fans have asked, when are you covering Mr. Sinister? And I'm always like, "Mm, that one's And for the people who keep asking about Jubilee and Bishop, guys, I didn't forget about them. Like when there's a character (laughs) that's really A-list and I haven't covered them yet, it's because I have someone in mind. So put a pin in that and we'll get there. Kieran, the first two issues of Immortal are now out as people are hearing this. Before we get into your work and Mr. Sinister, he's covering his face now, guys. I do need to read you the Riot Act a little bit. Kieran did warn me before I read Immortal X-Men number two of exactly what was going to happen to my Queen Celine, one of the more popular characters that recurs on this podcast. Here's the thing. She'll be fine. She's brought herself back without Hope's help many a time. I'm not super worried about her future, but how dare you? It was rude. (laughs) It was extremely rude to give my queen a little arc to begin your book and then shoot her in the head with Mysterium. I found that rude. It's like, I must admit that she did such a good speech in issue one. I I know. I would vote for her. Yeah. A lot of people <laughs> would. And I honestly, I'm still hoping, and I know you can't tell us anything, but with that preview thing of like, here's the 12 months sort of in that data page, if Sinister ends up somewhere bad by the end of it, I do think that would leave an appealingly vacant seat on the Quiet Council for a very evil vampire person. I'm just putting that out there. Yeah. I just hope, because I really did enjoy her X-Corp 
status quo that whenever she does regenerate herself from mist or whatever it is she'll do that, you know, they're not going to be too mad at her because here's the thing, as they all agreed, she made a valid point about their defenses. So we'll see. What made you want to use her though for your first arc? Wow. I must say, you've asked me that question. And it's the, like, you'd think I'd have an answer to that. She just seemed really cool. She is just fun, right? Yeah. Like, I was looking for, like, I wanted a, a big, interesting threat. I wanted, I wanted something that's political. I wanted a way to make the, the politics visual. Mm-hmm. I was very interested in the, um, just like, there was just the fundamental vision of it, I think. Like, yeah, she'll work. Right, yeah. You occasionally just cast the person. Because it's almost like, we're going to talk about when I did Sinister. In some case, like, when we're doing Uncanny X-Men, we think, okay, what major villains have not been used in the X-Men recently? And Sinister had been off the table. He'd been dead since Messiah Complex, so... Exactly. There was the Mike Carey arc with Black Womb, but, like, very brief. So that was, for me, it was like, well, I guess it's Sinister then. So in right. some ways, yeah, I just immediately went to Celine and didn't think about it anymore. That's so funny. <laughs> you know? You know, it's like, oh, yeah, Celine's she's somebody who would, A, be this petulant. Right, this petty. Because <laughs> like, here's the thing, people were like, I, I know people are going to wonder if I'm, like, upset that her plan didn't work. And here's the thing, guys. I don't like Celine because she makes plans well or they usually turn out well. For, like, the funniest thing about Celine is how bad she is at making things happen. Like, Necrotia, she notably becomes a god and is immediately killed seconds later. It is funny to me that I did do, with Krakoa Welcomes, an entire week of Celine TikToks leading up to this big, splashy issue, only to discover about halfway into posting them that it was her big, splashy death scene. But here's the thing. Again, in the age of Krakoa, and particularly with an external, I'm not super concerned. Yeah. I mean, she's a vampire queen, as you say. She's but, you know. the vampire <laughs> queen. She's a goddess. She's fine. Also... There's so many time shenanigans going on in this book already that I'm just simply choosing not to worry about anything that might be alarming that happens to any character in this book because you never know what could happen when you have a little Moira farm. It's meant to be a roller coaster, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And it's one of those bits like I think you get um, like Sinister sort of Sinister wants to investigate further, so it's it's one of those kind of that's my kind of it's an experiment shade exactly. Let's see what was actually happening there. Well, I mean, one of my favorite bits in Mortal One is when he says that Moira's methods were good, but she's a terrible scientist (laughs) because she only tried it 10 times. I mean, that's not... How are you going to possibly deduce something from that? That's the statistically invalid. That's completely invalid sample size. So... I mean, I will say, Moira, the control group factor is not really something she ever seems to have thought too much about. I just wanted to chastise you a little bit because I was hoping for at least a four-issue arc, but I get that if you have a very firm 12-issue arc that it seems like you're meeting out, that two issues, a full sixth, for Celine, a character who most people just don't know what to do with, it was a great showing. So I was pleased. And that outfit that Lucas designed for her was so gorgeous. I bought the page of Charles being like, are you taking this well or very poorly? <laughs> Lucas serving looks is so much about immortal. It's like... um. It's, it's, a, it's a politics book, so it could yeah. the risk of being quote unquote dull. But right. it's like, no, everyone looks amazing and everyone's very funny. And, you know, the, the wit, you know what I mean? Trying to wait, wait, palatable's the wrong word, but trying to do the two things at once. Mm-hmm. And something is perfect for that. You want people to. You do want that. people to look at the page and not care that the page is mostly talking heads. Yeah, yeah. The art being really lush is part of that. I'd like to pull back just a little bit uh, from my 
specific complaints for you and go to <laughs> the more general. For the listeners who are not familiar, Kieran Gillen is one of the most celebrated comics writers of modern times. He is well known for work at Marvel, like Young Avengers, which has a lot of fans with Jamie McKelvey, his frequent collaborator, Jamie McKelvey, with whom he also did the independent comic, The Begin the Divine, among other projects. Right now, Once in Future is a really big creator-owned that people really love. Die was very popular. And if you liked Die, you can support the Kickstarter right now to turn Die into an actual RPG. It has blown through its initial goal, but the stretch goals are really cool. So Blew through in 16 minutes. Well, there you go. There you go. Yeah. I mean, it's worth stressing. It's actually already written. It's it's, it's the editing, some more writing on it. And uh, it should all be with people, I think we're saying August PDF. So in other words... Like, you know, this is production rather than development. Right, the stuff's there. It's just about producing the product. I'm excited about that, and I have supported it on Kickstarter. Thank you very much. I, (laughs) you're welcome. Kieran, again, for listeners who are newer to the franchise, has written the X-Men before, writing Uncanny X-Men during the Utopia period after the decimation. You actually relaunched it from 544 to number one, which was audacious on Marvel's part, and I'd love to know what that experience was like. One of the key things in that run of Uncanny Volume 2 was the redefinition of the Mr. Sinister character. I'd love to hear about how you got into the X-Men, how you first got to write the X-Men, and what it's like to be writing them again in a very different time period for the franchise. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, um, I found myself like, Uncanny X-Men has ran for, you know, X number of years. I got it cancelled twice. And that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's an accomplishment. I've Chris got Claremont wrote that for 16 years. Uh, okay, like being a British, I mean, you know, I've said, I say this to everyone, I'm not a lifer. And that's what I mean by that, as in like, I'm somebody who hasn't read comics for the whole period. Mm-hmm. But like in the Brit, I read comics as a kid. Uh, and they were like, in Britain, you got reprints mainly. So they were basically printing like contemporary 1985 era comics with 1970s comics with 1960s comics. So you learnt characters, but you never really learnt how anything stuck together. Like I was reading Machine Man at the same time as Secret Wars, right. at the same time as like 1960s 4. So like I, the first X-Men I got, I think it's literally 60s Kirby sort of stuff. And they were printing that. So that was always like, oh, this is interesting. But at the same time, you were picking up occasional issues of American stuff that was happening. Right. Mike Carey said he's older than you, obviously, but he said that in his day, they would come across as like ballast on ships and just happen Mm. to be at like the supermarket that week. But there was no way to predict month to month what you'd be able to get. Tom, you're old as I was. If you lived in a big city, you could get comics. Right. But like, if you lived in a small town like I did, you could unreliably get stuff in newsagents. And it would be like Super Spider-Man and like Hulk comic and all those reprints and things that just like throw it all together, right? Oh, no, no. The reprints you could get, that's fine. But the stuff, the American... The current stuff. Yeah, yeah. You were just like a random issue with no idea of context. And that, so my 80s, like earliest, like contemporary Marvel experience were like, I have no idea what's happening and I love it. It was the, uh, <laughs> my first one I bought when it was coming out. I think it was the Nimrod versus Hellfire Club versus X-Men fight. A key Celine issue. Celine. Yeah. So like, I was into it even from then. And of course you don't know. So I don't know who Rachel is. I don't know why she's been hurt. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, neither did Claremont really at that moment in time. And unfortunately that plot never gets picked up because they canceled the Phoenix mini. And it's like, so all this, and course, that's a great issue. You know oh, I mean? it's You've a great got, issue. Like, JRJR. Harry dying, uh, everyone looks great. Weird, scary, enormous pink robot. Woman with like eight limbs at the end, don't know why. The blood scent, all that stuff is happening. Yeah. It's a crazy time. Uh, 
that's what I remember first. I think there might be it might be in the second one because I think I picked one three months earlier, which was uh, like a Freedom Force issue when they're in San Francisco. Uh-huh. Or alternatively, it's just after. So like th- that had Mystique in it. So it's like the great thing, of course, I roughly know the oh they're in okay they're in the West Coast of America now, right? You know, and they look great because they've got really good fashion, as you know, in this period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As uh, it get Jamie on at some point, Jamie actually. Jamie's biggest, uh, Jamie, he was reading this monthly because his older brother's got it. Gotcha. But like, if you want to get early Jamie McKelvey influences, you want to look at that period of X-Men. We joke about Wiktiv. Wiktiv is literally a creepy old person who takes a bunch of teenagers yeah. uh, to a mansion and, and uh, sort of makes them do stuff. There is a Charles Xavier vibe, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, because that's, like, that, that's my period. So that's, and, uh, in my teenage years, I sort of drift out of the X-Men. And I must admit, it's worth knowing, because I've got this weird scattershot stuff, I had no experience with DC. Right. So was, I know the Marvel Universe, but only in little bits and pieces from then. I come back into comics like when I'm about 21, um, when I discover Watchmen. Then I sort of slowly become like a one or two trade a year guy until uh, I'm lured to comic shops like every month because of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Alan coming back. Gotcha. But this, of course, is also new, the whole new Marvel stuff. So, right. oh, Grant's writing the X-Men. So the first X-Men I followed was Grant's. You know, that's kind of, so me as an adult reading like Grant, uh, Grant doing the X-Men, and that's plus that speaks a lot of why like people like uh, Emma, for example. Yeah, no, of course. I was buying that in high school as it was coming out because I'm about ten years younger than you, I think. Mm, something like that. With me, I was reading all the '80s stuff as a kid because my dad had it, sort of like how Jamie's older brother would be buying it. But you know, if you have someone in the house who collects it when you're a kid, that's helpful because then it's in the house. Yeah. And then the 90s stuff didn't appeal to me as much. So that would be the time when you fell off. I think a lot of people kind of fell off in the late 90s, especially. And then Grant was the first time I was really like consistently buying it month to month also, which is why I also have a great affection for Emma, but specifically for like the Morrison onward Emma, which much like the Gillen onward Sinister, as I said earlier, is a very different character. It's definitely because Emma was a character who I had no experience of before. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like, oh yeah, that's who that's she is kind of, to you, right? That's what like kind of person, no, exactly. You know? yeah. yeah, especially like I say, I've got no experience in the nineties, and of course, people were very down in the nineties when I was starting to mm-hmm. read comics properly. So I never actually really went back until like relatively recently, like bits for sinister, obviously. But I remember you and I had a long conversation about the Black Womb Project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that is threaded in very weird, random Fabian Niciesa comics throughout like the whole decade, and you really have to trace it. I've got through it so hard in the 90s because it's everyone's doing influenced by Claremont, but there's everything's the world is so changeable and reliable. Yeah, no one has a run that long. People just can't thread their stories. And so yeah, people yeah. just like Fabian in particular, he'd get fired off a book and then have a new book and then he would like try to work that plot back into the new book. So you have to trace it from like X-Men through Gambit into X-Men forever. It, it's a mess. Uh, <laughs> but I'm glad he did it because now we've got all these pieces to play with. It's just one of those things where unlike Claremont where you can just read uncanny straight through and see most of the subplots get tied up by the end there are certain claremont danglers that another writer will have to fix someday (laughs) one of them perhaps involving the queen of the sun people of the savage land but i digress (laughs) the point is how did you get into the position to be writing the x-men because if you're first reading it with grant which is like 2001 that starts it's not that much later that you're actually in the room talk about weird you know what i mean right and it is because I, I go into comics hard that's just, that's one of the things i'm like uh i wish it's like I'm, i was raised catholic and it's like if, you, if you're <laughs> brought up catholic i'm surprised you read the comics but if you're brought up catholic so if you actually convert to a religion you're much more intense yes right that was me with comics i came in hard 
And it is, like, I found myself thinking, at the beginning of the decade, I was just getting into this form. At the end of the decade, I was writing four, and then, like, very shortly after Uncanny. And that is a weird, yeah. like, accelerated development. Uh, so Phonogram is 2006. Right. And when I was starting to, like, hype Phonogram, like, the, God bless the comics press, but they're quite predictable in some ways at, the, at that time. And one of the questions they always ask new indie people is, uh, what superhero would you like to write? Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm I'm in the places, you know, no, no, no disrespect for any of the superheroes, but I'm trying to sell my indie You're trying comic. to sell your indie comic that's not a superhero comic, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So... <laughs> So I had the joke answer. Oh, Dazzle, obviously, because yeah, you know right. it's a phone, it's a phonogram. You know, so we get the joke and people laugh and we move on. But of course, that gets into your brain. So like, um, I end up having a Dazzler pitch, which people can Google up. It's called Dazzler Big in Adelan. It's a great story <laughs> that was never produced. You can read the pitch. Actually, no, but here's the thing, Kieran. The first time I ever read like a formal pitch document, it was your Dazzler Big in Adelan pitch because not that many people release those, right? Yeah. I've known Kieran for years from my day job. Actually, the last time I saw you in person before COVID and everything, we were in Dublin. House of X and Pirates of Ten were coming out right then. And we had lunch and talked about them. And I said to you, like, all I would love is for you to find some occasion to write Emma Frost again in a more uh, open, <laughs> expansive environment. So this book is is pretty exciting to me. Yeah. It was, that, was, that, was fun. that was fun. I remember most of that lunch we were talking Emma Frost. That was, uh, that <laughs> yeah, was no, we were just like, let's talk Emma, right? Yeah, yeah. Or as you always call her, the White Queen. Yeah, oh, that was the worst. Sorry, we'll get to, <laughs> we'll get we'll to, get that. to that bit in a minute. Yeah. But no, actually, when I'm... Okay, I'll just say it now before I forget. Yeah. Like my first ever X Summit. So they have these, the small X Summits. And we're sitting around the table. Uh, and I say, oh, yeah, the White Queen should do this. And you can feel like the entire room get icy. Because, like, no, she, you called them Emma, darling. And it's like, oh, dear. Because I'm really bad with names. So I, for a moment, I just, like, brain failed with Emma. <laughs> but, yeah, that, that was a, a bit of kind of, oh, I shouldn't say that. No, it's, like... it's, well, but it's interesting with her because it's one of those code names where if you don't have the original context, it doesn't make any sense. So like particularly <laughs> yes. when she is like her actual superpower is being a rich white woman. So when she walks in and she's like, I'm the white queen. If you don't know about the hellfire club, you're like, what? Beg pardon. So I get why it's been kind of phased out a little bit over time. Mm. So after phonogram, you were asked what superhero would you like to write? You talked about Dazzler. You wrote that pitch, which is great that people should look up. And when I first reached out to you, I was like, do you want to come on and talk about Dazzler? Because that seemed like an obvious choice. You mm. had written that pitch. You love to work music into your comics, but it just didn't work out scheduling-wise, and then Evan Narciss wanted to do Dazzler. And then I was like, you know, honestly, let's go big or go home. If I'm going to have Kieran on my show, we should be talking about Mr. Sinister. So I'm glad we waited, and I'm excited. I know a lot of the listeners are excited for this episode how did the questions about Dazzler and you doing that pitch lead to writing the X-Men for real? That was Fraction. Basically, Fraction said, hey, we, get, we, want, to, we want to do a Dazzler story. Uh, I send your pitch in. And it didn't <laughs> go anywhere because the this is, a, this is the problem with pitching to Marvel or DC. Is that I didn't know where this current status quo was going. Well, right. That's why I've never pitched blindly. I've always ever gone to being asked to pitch so mm-hmm. i'm like someone at the someone at the bar trying to look pretty and then they approach me and then i will you know tell them something in this case i'd uh phonogram doesn't really say you can write superhero comics and it says that marvel liked it but like it wasn't really that right was, i wasn't even really pursuing it mm-hmm. i was quite i you know i was having my own thing going on um but then i got asked to write one issue of new new universal which was like a, a war analysis uh, yeah they were doing then and it was a, a variety of writers got picked to do like spin-offs um i wrote this one and this is like a kind of a James Oldroy sort of superhero conspiracy comic. Mm-hmm. Did one issue with it. And of course that immediately, oh, Kieran can write superhero comics. 
And then I got like both the uh, the four office and the and the Nick Low at the uh, X office just reach out to me. Hey, you interested in pitching stuff? So it's kind of explicitly like, oh, you can do it. In the with Nick, he said, hey, uh, gives an eight page dazzle story for the that. Was it Manifest Destiny? Yes. That was the anthology. Which is still, I, I still can't believe they called it that. But yeah. Cool. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> not sure they thought that one through. Well, it's like they're moving west. I'm like, yeah, but, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, uh, so I wrote this eight pack, and that, I didn't fuck that up. They said, hey, uh, we're going to do a uh, Sabretooth issue, uh, which I wrote this Sabretooth Origins and didn't mess that one up. Though I did I did enter, I handed the script, I called it Saberwolf. Uh, and that's like Saber Wolf is a 1980s uh, 8-bit video game correct and I got Nick Nick Lowe asking me like Kieran is the reason why you've called it by a different name and I had to go no no that's a mistake I'm just really bad with names yeah Uh, (laughs) um, and I didn't mess that up I will say you made as someone who suffered through writing the Sabretooth character file some episodes back, you did make my life more difficult by introducing new elements to his backstory that didn't quite jive with others. But here's the thing, Kieran, you're one of about 50 people to do that and it's all fine. <laughs> it was not your <laughs> fault. It's not your fault. Yours was some of the stuff I liked more, honestly, but. I don't, I mean, I'm, you're gonna do this. I'm not gonna hear the sinister character follow until it broadcasts. Yeah, I'm you're sure. not gonna, cause I record it separately just to, that's yeah. how the sausage is made for the people. But I don't envy you. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a rough one. It's a rough one. I'm about halfway through it right now. And I will say like, as always, I do feel it's really important to like cite your sources and stuff. I'm doing a lot of rereading myself because particularly with these really tricky characters like Monet or Cable or Sinister or Sabretooth, I can't not because if I just like look at other people's summaries, I simply won't understand them. But UncannyXMen.net has the greatest issue summaries of like every single issue of X-Men that's ever come out. And those are very helpful if I can't get my hands on something or if I just need to check like one reference really quick, like what page can I look for to see like like for example Milbury apparently and I had forgotten this it's like an estate that his wife owned yes that's so like things like that like where it's just I'm like what issue was that in because I gotta say what issue it was but I don't and I don't want to miss that because it's like when especially when we're revealing backstory but so yeah uncannyxmen.net is perfect for that for the more minor characters the Marvel Universe appendix is essential and even like the weirdos on the Marvel Wiki, God love you. I don't trust anything I read there, but it at least gives me a place to check. Oh, so they mostly cite the references, so you can you can right. Go you can you, you I go down the to issue. the references, so yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, this one's tough. This is a tough one. I needed yeah. the four week hiatus or whatever between episodes purely to do sinister research. <laughs> Honestly, even for me, because it's it's contradictory. It just is. Well, like, right, because people just villains can be anywhere. <laughs> yeah, and before people knew we could read things in trade, they didn't care that much about keeping things consistent. Claremont, in particular, retcons himself all the time, mm. and then later writers, particularly in the '90s, I feel like Nisiesa had a very specific vision of Mister Sinister, and everybody else was just kind of doing whatever they felt like, and it doesn't always. <laughs> It's hard because like people have ownership, but people don't have ownership of villains in the same way they've ownership of heroes. Mm-hmm. So it's it's much harder to chart them unless no one else is writing them, in which case no one cares about them. Well, right? You know I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, part of why I think my vision of Celine that I put forth in my episode has been captivating <laughs> to the listenership is because she's a character who's been so sparingly used 
that when I just drew the pieces together and was like, this character is a lot of fun. People were like, she is a lot of fun. I just don't think about her because no one uses her. And then when she showed up in Immortal, people were like, and for the record, guys, Kieran had not heard that episode before. Writing. I had not, no. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. That's what that was. That your take was exactly my take. Look at that's her. the she, thing. Yeah, she's right. Fun. It's like she's exactly. I mean, you know, it's funny. You said like she just came to mind. What occurred to me when I was reading it was she represents the oldest mutant that we know of, right? I mean, we there's mm. like the one billion yada yada like you know cave Avengers or whatever. We don't putting that aside, and we can't put them aside for long because it seems like Steve is going to do something with that in Marauders based on the mysterious box and all of that. However, in terms of like the more contemporary, let's say homo sapiens mutants that we know of, Celine is the first one and has by hook or by crook kept herself alive all this time. Whereas hope represents the first of this new generation of mutants after the decimation. I mean, and to me, it was sort of like, I mean, I think it would be very handy to have both of them there for consultation, but it did feel like the youth saying, we need a voice and the most obvious older person to contrast that to would be the person who's literally 17,000. Yeah. That's somatically struck. Some of our senators feel about 17,000. So it was a very, you know, Celine just sort of shows up. She's more with it than some of those senators. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you don't want to, most of the, not, not trying to body shame any of the senators, but you don't want to imagine, you know, they're in hot leather pants most on the side. Right, you know, no, one, she's, look. yeah, she's got, she's kept it tight with the souls of the innocent and, and the guilty. <laughs> Um, but also she, you know, she's mental. She doesn't need like her Senate pages to like remind her when her meetings are and things like that. So that's helpful. I yeah. kept saying at X Corp, she must like, uh, she would probably be like, call my scribe, which is what she calls her secretary. And they're always like, you're what? But I digress. Point is, X-Men. when you did get X-Men, <laughs> but before we started, Kieran was like, I have at least two hours, but you know how you and I can talk. And I was like, no, I know. So I'm going to try. I'm going to keep us on track. I swear to God. I've got the image of like two, two hours in. We go, anyway, Mr. Sinister. Anyway, Mr. Sinister, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think we're already like a half an hour in, but it's fine because the intro part of the podcast is more like, let's talk about you. I was just about to get to Mr. Sinister, actually. So when you did get X-Men, you looked at the characters, the antagonist characters who you could use. Mr. Sinister's been out of use for a while. You decide to take on Mr. Sinister. What compelled you to really rebuild the character from the ground up? Like, what is the genesis of Kieran Gillen's Sinister, as people call it, in the same way they say Grant Morrison's Emma Frost? For me, it was a case like, um, for me, work for hard jobs. It's, there's two things. I've got a character that's basically working, in which case you're being almost paid to do the thing. Right. You know what I mean? Like, people pay Batman. You know, they want to read a Batman doing a Batman thing, mm -hmm. or Logan doing a Logan thing. You know, these are characters which are defined, which are fundamentally operative. And then there's the other sorts of characters which aren't quite working. Right. And, like, and I don't mean, you know, as in, as in they're not landing, there's something off with them, people, you know. Well, no, until Claremont wrote Magneto, Magneto did not work. Mm. And That's similarly, really I think, I mean, the ones I point to, I say, like, the Claremont Magneto, the Morris and Emma the Gillen Sinister. These are characters who didn't quite fit into the universe like perfectly until a writer with a vision for them was like, what if they were like this, though? I, must, I will not put myself on the same level, not just out of like shyness, but I think what's my favorite thing about my Sinister quote-unquote is it tries to do too much. 
and then like other writers, specifically John, refine it. it. Yeah, Hickman you know really I mean? did refine it tightly. It's like in Secret like a, Wars. I remember early on, like when um, uh, uh, Jason was doing, you know, sister books, and I've got a bit where literally the entire second issue is Sinister explaining why he's doing what he's doing. Meanwhile, Jason does his villain in like three panels. I'm, I'm aware <laughs> of. Yeah, I've got too many ideas in this character. And in the end, it's like, you know what I mean? There's just too much. I'm talking about uh, the nature of scientific method. I'm right. talking about 90th century colonialism. I mean, You're talking yeah. about the ship of Theseus. You're talking about like so many things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in the end, I think the best stuff is in this. You just say the attitude. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the, you know, the, the camp att- sensibility, the sort of like, you know, yeah. Paul Lind meets Noel Coward vibe that the character has had since that run, I think is the thing that other writers, particularly Hickman and then Zeb in Hellions, really jumped on. Yeah, and it's like the ship of Theseus and the the, the cloning, the cloning forever. himself thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the not the narcissism there, uh, and the other bit. I think it's, it's the most throwaway again. It, mutants as property, and I mean mm-hmm. that, that's always you know it, it, this is what I talk about. You know, I'm sort of doing the result rather than the the thinking. The '90s reveals that the mutant massacre was motivated by him thinking this is my research that someone else used to make these Morlocks. So mm. he's proprietary over these people who are alive but to him it's yeah. like this is this is my stuff so that's kind of like what since this wasn't quote unquote working i wanted to what i did i look at them and go okay what's interesting about them right and let, let's just boil that and for me like main things like, like you read when you're reading like the further adventures of like gene and scott mm-hmm. you've got um you know he knew darwin right you know that's interesting yeah he's like the salieri to darwin's mozart in that yeah, yeah. whole little book it's such a weird chapter, that Peter Milligan, like, mini, that defines so much of the character, but Milligan otherwise didn't write him very much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I'm sure we'll talk about that. Like, when, since my favorite, like, Yeah, we'll get stories, to this favorite ones... Sinister Stories after the break. But it's very much like, um, you've just got to write a great gothic horror vibe. And you've got a real tragic, you know, they give him a sort of tragic, he's burnt out everything that makes him care about anything ever. And that's, and that's one of the things that made me a, a missing piece. So in terms of, like... Oh, that's where you get the kind of the nihilism of his comedy. Yeah, <laughs> I guess like he literally doesn't think anything else exists. Well, once you get that the name Mister Sinister comes from what his wife called him when she was dying and told him that everything that she had ever loved about him was gone now because he had like scienced it out. His response to that was, "Well, I guess that's my name now." You know, is like a very <laughs> characterizing moment, even if it's played very seriously in Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. The narcissism of that and the nihilism of that is also a good source of comedy. Yeah, yeah. you know, comedy is tragedy plus time, right? It's definitely the kind of the uh, the, the the hell without a bottom floor of sinister. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of that was very much my uh, you know. There's a I know we're doing. If you look inside, but if you look behind that that smile, there's very little there. Right. And there's a, I don't want to spoil future bits of um, Immortal, but one of the things. I'm trying to do with the character in Immortal is he's always become too fun recently. And I'm kind of like, cause he's just nice. Cause that's what he's performing. Mm-hmm. Well, Hellion Sinister is mostly just like fun and Immortal One was very much like, but in case you forgot, he's also very scary. Yeah. You've definitely like, I want, I want to show the fact it is a mask more, mm-hmm. you know, that's because even one of the first things I did when I brought him back was you saw him experimenting with himself. Right. And at least that, that was partially me trying to, um, I don't like making big changes of characters, which are irreversible. Uh, which forced people to do stuff. Mm-hmm. And for me, since Sinister was all clearly cloning and reinventing himself, he could do it in a different way and be back to like humanless robot Sinister if someone preferred that. Right. You know what I mean? Like I, I was always providing a backdoor for it. But anyway, that's also that 
the the flamboyant to him comes from that. He was always pretty camp. Yeah, you know I mean, like, well, like, he's he's in the little booties. He's got the goth makeup. He painted a little diamond on his forehead. He's got the huge cape. Like, there's always he's always been a bit of a drag character to begin with. Because in Claremont's original conception, he was the over-the-top imagining of a child. Hmm. So there's always been a heightened over-the-topness to his aesthetic and to his mannerisms. The, most, the cool thing was, like, the, the, the other two were, most villains say something about the people they're facing. And so for me, Sinister was like, oh no, the extra, ex- mutants are amazing. Right. But your, your extra is all that matters about you. You know what I mean, and that's a that's the flip of every you know everyone else. Mm-hmm. Like you know, as in it's completely dehumanizing. That for me, that's just the, he's done it to himself. He's completely dehumanized himself, and now he will view you as uh, things to be exploited. The the clonal, you know, the nineteenth century colonialist attitude. Yes, and applying that to this the natural resource that is mutants. Right, that was kind of the that's the heart of what my sinister. One is. of my favorite things in the sinister flashback stories is when you see that his discovery essentially of the x gene he called it the essex factor which I, I just reread that getting on there. that's funny isn't that's really that great funny. yeah like <laughs> so it's just like there's something very funny about that because that is what scientists do right like alzheimer's disease was isolated by dr alzheimer like you name it after yourself or, or other people who follow after you mm. name it after you but he decided to call the godlike thing he discovered in these people the essex factor there's something very funny about tracing a natural line from that to moira mctaggart's work on the x factor Mm. it's not something that she necessarily did on purpose but there is a, a heritage kind of of his attitude toward mutants down the generations through to moira's work on mutants which was well, as we learned in House of X, not nearly as altruistic as initially presented to us in the 70s and 80s. So I like that. But to some extent, it's like they're my great discovery. And so I can do anything with them that I want. Yeah, I think you said they are the country I've discovered. That's a beautiful right. way of putting it. That's literal He planted his was, flag yeah. on their entire minority group. British. Because he found you know, them. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the other one was like, give him a, give him a goal. Mm-hmm. You know, because I mean? so he's like ambled around being sinister for not really any, you know, like just discover it, knowledge for its own sake is fine. I, so I do get that. But that kind of like, let's give him an actual goal, which people can understand. And the apocalypse stuff, which was like his goal in the 90s, was always very confusing. And by the end of the 90s, it's over. Like the cable versus apocalypse plot mm-hmm. has concluded to whatever extent. So he needs something else to do if you want him to continue to be at large. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely goals. Are imp- I mean, this is one of the things I've I, I've always gravitated towards writing the villains too much. I think in my Marvel books, mm-hmm. but like I, I say that as in, if I was going to critique my own work, that's what I'd say. I've gravitated towards writing villains because I'm like people who want things. Mm-hmm. So in other words, like, I give them more time because I think you know they're plot drivers. They have the big "I want" song if it was a mm. musical, you know. Exactly, that makes you know Sinister would love a musical. Why is it other musical yet? Well, there's a reason <laughs> that the Disney songs that are most iconic to people typically are the villain songs done by the very camp over the top villain singing there i want yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean that's that's a bit obviously he's always been a bit queer coded let's yeah let's yeah push. no we can let's, put, let's just put it let's on the push. table you made him gay yeah, but I he mean, always I mean, was is the thing tragic wife aside but like you know shakespeare had a wife didn't mean shakespeare yeah. wasn't really fucking gay and that's not to erase the potential bisexuality of shakespeare for the people listening we don't know he's been dead a long time i'm just saying lots of people in historical periods 
had heterosexual marriages who weren't necessarily invested in those marriages in a sexual sense. Hmm. And for Sinister, who's a scientist above all, I think that he wanted children. And we know, by the way, that it was an arranged marriage. So he was crazy about his wife, but, you know, maybe crazy about her in the Laurence Olivier and Joan Plowright sense of being crazy about your wife rather than the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like... That's it, that's, that's... There is that you say the arranged marriage is really interesting, especially because essentially that's all he tries to do. Right, he, tries to arrange he arranges other people's marriage marriages yeah, for the yeah, rest yeah. of time. Amanda and Daniel, he basically manipulates Scott and Jean together as best he can, which is a fun time loop with further adventures because we know if once we know <laughs> that he met them in the past as a married couple, and that's what yeah, yeah. got him interested in looking into their potential gene crossing in yeah. the first place. Like it's very there's a lot of fun yeah. time travel stuff with them. I can't believe I'm the world's foolish writer. I've never realized Jean is a joke until this second. That her name is, is Jean? You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I'm, it's something like I realized, I'm, I'm pretty sure like, the wasp being a wasp is funny. The wasp being you know, a wasp like, is more on yeah. the nose, but yeah, yeah Jean yeah, yeah. being named Jean and talking to Xavier in the first issue about the extra power. I actually don't think that's intentional on Stan and Jack's part. It probably though, isn't. <laughs> because the genetic component of mutantdom doesn't really exist until Claremont brings in Moira. Mm. Before that, it's just, oh no, the radiation. Yeah. Oh, the other thing you get to do, like, sister the weaponization of mutants in fun ways mm -hmm. that's the other thing i tried then and i don't for me that's the that's the best single idea i had i think just because it's like so just making clones of people who isn't necessarily that interesting everyone does that right the jackal did it in spider-man for like a decade <laughs> and who cares frankly exactly people were not thrilled with that so there's also just there's something intrinsically funny about the idea of like if Sinister is a narcissist who makes clones and chimeras and stuff, then just making things white and slapping a diamond on them is really funny. Like things that shouldn't look <laughs> yes. like Mr. Sinister. Like that is hilarious to do. Like the cat. The cat, you know, literally, right? Like, that's yeah. A, right. I was ashamed. I didn't notice. Uh, I wish I made the, uh, the, the Galapagos tortoise uh, white <laughs> as well. Yeah. Like, that's what I meant to do, but I forgot to ask for it. Well, now you've uh, got so, time. Yeah. I mean, you've got plenty of, uh, plenty of opportunities. Yeah. You know, like, I remember the Kate Kildare twist, when it's like, Kate oh. Kildare's Mr. Sinister. It's just like, boop, she's white with a diamond. You're like, oh, shit. Like, it, it, <laughs> it was just the idea that anyone can be sinister. I mean, I Mike Carey also worked with that, that a great little stuff. bit. Yeah. With the Cronus Project Black Womb stuff, where it was like, yeah, of course, Sinister, who's invested in not dying, would have all kinds of weird backdoor Trojan horse methods of possessing people he also loves a possession he had malice in his employ for years and years and years so there's just a lot of funny potential there and i think that what carried through more than anything else was making him that kind of camp disney villain like an ursula or jafar or like one of those sort of queer coded yeah. cartoon villains but then also making the mad science funny because i think the weakest mr sinister mm. stories are the ones where he's just Dr. Mengele. Like, that doesn't intrigue me. Even leaving aside the, like, baggage of, and I'm sure mm. we'll get into that. As as I say, I'm sure we're going to talk yeah, about that some like, point, yes. uh, leaving aside the baggage that it left the character with, which you and Jonathan have both found creative ways to dodge to certain extents, I just also don't think it's interesting. Mr. Sinister in an overcoat experimenting on people in a lab is not as interesting to me as Mr. Sinister in his big silly cape turning a cat into a Mr. Sinister. Like that's much funnier and more interesting to me to read. And I imagine it's therefore more interesting to write. And it's certainly what I think has 
made a character who really didn't work. I think that the reason he is so iconic to fans is that he's in the cartoon a lot in the 90s. Mm. Because if you look at the actual comics, he's not in that much of it. He pops up for Inferno, dies in Inferno. Claremont doesn't bring him back. It's Nisiesa and Lobdell in that period who bring him back in a couple stories. He's just kind of around. He's one of those characters like Celine, who after Claremont, it never felt like well, Nisiesa had a vision for him, but one that it seems didn't get realized ultimately. Mm. And so everybody else, he's just kind of floating around and he looks cool and he's in the cartoon a bunch. So we've got to use him. But it didn't feel like there was a real narrative engine behind the character until you decided that Sinister is a system. Which is one of my favorite sentences. Sinister is a system is a good sentence. It's a great you know sentence. I mean? Like all the S's. Yeah. And I was trying to work out this before coming on. What was the first Sinister story I read? And I can't work it out. Because I think you're right. I, I just understood him as background radiation. Like I knew him from the video game. I knew right. him in the car. I, I could recognise him. Yeah. But like, and then I think the I think worse. It might have been um, Endangered Species. It's or Messiah Complex. Mm-hmm. Wh- wh- which one he died in? Messiah Complex is where he died. Messiah yeah. Complex. That might be the first one I read of him actually. Which is you know what I mean like explicitly sitting down and reading him. Mm-hmm. It might have been that. Which is weird. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean like so it's that kind of just it's what it's, I always think with characters. You want to know why you're reading them. And I think this always my kind of like, you want a deep, you want deep stuff for people who really know the characters to sort of do that. But also with instantly someone get why, oh, I know why this character's on stage rather than someone else. You know, and I kind of like, you, you don't want to push it into complete cartooniness. But like at the same time, you want to remind you why we like this guy. I mean, there's, in Immortal 2, there's that bit where, I mean, Scott's not one of my characters, but I do Scott writing this page of like how to engage monsters. It's so good. And, and I asked, <laughs> by the way, I asked Kieran if, Scott making a point about how you should give command to someone who can identify a sentinel was a nod to the Candy Southern episode of this podcast. Kieran has not yet heard the Candy Southern episode of this podcast. So here's the thing. People reach out and they're like, clearly this person has heard your... And I'm like, that's very flattering. However, sometimes two people make the same joke and that's okay. Especially that... It's not during the data page of that, because especially in that case, it's like, okay, let's have fun with Scott's voice. Yeah, right? And And he would absolutely be like, if you need to read a document about Sentinels, (laughs) you should not be directing an X-Men team. You should already know this. And I, think, and I, I, I imagine that voice not like I don't know Gene would say it would be like for fuck's sake stop doing that right. Scott saying no you're unsuited for command right no like, exactly Scott being quite sincere. Like, I'm very I'm very serious about this actually yeah although one thing I've really enjoyed about Jerry's Cyclops is the very like sort of dry sense of humor that he oh has yeah 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 I love that. one of my favorite bits in Jerry's X-Men number one in particular is when Lorna shows up with her matched green luggage and she's like, I have to talk to you about something. And he's like, did you kill Wanda? Because if so, please don't tell me. Which is <laughs> great. I know some fans were like, oh my God, you're making light. It's like, guys, they're X-Men. People die all the time and you gotta be, you gotta crack jokes about it or it's not gonna, yeah. you know. What I like about Scott at the moment, especially compared to when I was writing him, is Scott's having fun right now. Yes. You were writing Scott and Emma at a time when I mean, this is something that's interesting to me. The editorial direction for those characters at the time was that Utopia was becoming an authoritarian state. Wolverine was right to schism out and Scott and Emma were wrong, which is not how I felt reading the comic. And as it turns out, is not how a lot of people felt reading the comic. And if you look at Krakoa, it is sort of a natural outgrowth to some extent of Cyclops and Emma's politics in both the Fraction, Gillen period of Utopia and the Bendis period where they're revolutionaries. 
I'm just interested in how your perspective on those characters has changed now coming in to write them versus when you were writing them 10 years ago. It's like when I take on a work for her job, like what I'm doing is not quite true. This is, this is overbroad, but like what I always try to, what, what continuity matters. Right. And the continuity for me, the most that matters is the big stuff for the character, as in, you know, like the, the iconic stories. As in, these are the things which even people who haven't read the character know. So they're the reason why people care. If you're writing about Gene, you have to talk about the Phoenix Saga. You have to talk about yeah. certain things that happen to the character because that's what everybody in the world who might be picking this up for the first time has absorbed via osmosis about the character. Exactly that. And then there's also recent continuity. Like the stuff which is like, let's say the last five years. What they've been up to recently. Because you don't want to drive off the road and lose the readers who've been ongoing. Unless you're doing a really aggressive take-up. Unless you're doing like a hard, like Hickman stepping and going, we're doing something new, like which is yeah. different. Yeah, exactly. That they, but for me, especially that I describe my job then was I'm stepping in se four seasons of Breaking Bad. That was kind of the vibe. You were like the new showrunner and it was season five. And I'm not going to abandon that narrative momentum. This is the story. <laughs> and in some ways, that's kind of a, what I'm doing on Immortal, but just in a very different situation. Yeah. You know? So like, I'm less... I'm not... my So with those two things true, when I get onto a book... I'm thinking about, okay, where are they now? What do I think about them? Mm -hmm. And always with me, I'm trying to write the characters as hard as I can. By which I mean, I'm, quote-unquote, on their side. Right. Like I'm, especially when I, when I was first on Canny X-Men, I was... I mean, I'd just come off writing Four, and Four was a very difficult job for various reasons. This is not Fantastic Four, to be clear, for people who are listening who are not. Not Fantastic Four, Four, the hammer. The Four... T yeah, I'm saying this is not Fantastic Four, to be clear. Kieran is saying Thor... But with a I th with a fuss sound <laughs> because of his Midland accent. Yes, I think it's just it's a very slight speech impediment. I can't do ths very well. I love it, and I am encouraging you. you to talk about Thor as much as you want. I'm Four. just clarifying that it's Thor, the god of thunder, not the Fantastic yes. First family of Marvel. It was a tricky job for various reasons, and because I based, I'm going to be good to myself. I nailed it. Yeah, like it, it went it went very well. Uh, and basically, I think Marvel realized, oh, he deals with this. He deals with problems well. And the fact that I think they need someone to run Canny X-Men who, well, AVX was coming up, Schism was coming up, right. and whoever would be writing Canny X-Men would not be writing AVX. Right. So that's a very complicated needle to yeah. thread as a writer. Exactly. So I came on knowing about Schism, knowing about AVX, and knowing my job. And my job was basically dance between raindrops. You had to get Scott, Emma, Ilyana, Piotr, and Namor to the place where AVX would be a logical next step in the narrative. Yeah, yeah. And that's how, that's how I put the job in that way, as in, like, like the first ten were like, okay, they have a schism, I want to have, the first arc will be hap happy times, let's actually genuinely have optimism for once, and then we'll show the slow descent during mm -hmm. fear itself, and then the next ten issues after the relaunch were, okay, they're going to fight Avengers, I want them, I want people to want to see an Avengers X-Men fight by the end of those ten issues. Right. I want to be at this, you know, and that, that was my arc, and then during AVX, it was kind of, I always define this, they were doing a crossover, and I ha as well as A, doing my story, I'm also kind of like, as a reader, what would I want to read? What bugs me? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and so in the like, the good example of there was um, there wasn't much about the five, obviously, in um, in AVX, and that would bug me as an X Men reader. We've done this plot for quite a while, or like the original five, rather, not the the O five, not the Phoenix five, and not the current five, different five. Yes, yes. Uh, so let's do an issue about that. So you know what I mean? Like, right. I was, that's I view my job to basically argue the X-Men's position as hard. And I've got reservations over the X-Men position. I think Scott was correct, but I don't think he was right. And I think well, that's, that's a and of, that's it. That's, that's a key It line. can be nuanced, right? Like, I, I, yeah, when I say Scott was right on Utopia, I mean, I think Scott's political position was right. I think some of his methods were 
questionable let's say yes that's what I, I think that's a really good way of putting it and like this is something you, and the, you want people to be able to argue and talk about this well and stuff. that's Krakoa that's the... too right I mean that yeah, is yeah. sinister at core is mm. like everyone's like how can the X-Men allow sinister to hang out with them on Krakoa and it's like well they're not happy about it but sometimes you decide that the end justifies the means and that yeah. is the question of politics in reality always i love the meta i mean honestly like, there's always the two levels there's the in-universe stuff which is great and there's also the 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 analytical writer brain prop so mm-hmm. i just said you know analyzing sinister on one level you step outside and look at the character to see what didn't work then you step inside the character and work out how to do it right so like it's, it, this is staying the obvious and everyone listening to this will know but I, i'm sure john went okay It'd be great. Just stick all. We've got to forgive all the villains straight, and then we'll. They're more interesting. Stick them on the same island, and they interact. Because like, I spent so long when we were writing Star Wars comics trying to work out a way for Darth Vader to be in the same room as Luke or Leia mm-hmm. and not have a fight. Right. Because we want to see them. You know, we want to so, see them talk. Yeah. It's like Batman. Batman always finds a way for villain characters to be on Batman's side for certain stories because you want Batman to be talking to Poison Ivy or talking to Harley Quinn or talking to the Riddler or talking to whoever because all of these characters are compelling. What I think Hickman realized was the characters in X-Men that people really love above all are sort of a core group of heroic characters who either were in the 90s cartoon, in the Claremont run, or are very individual characters from the student classes that followed. Mm. And otherwise, it's the bad guys. People love all of these stupid characters. And so having an island where all of the X-Men are forced to sit at the tiki bar with Sinister and Celine and Apocalypse and everybody else who has caused no end of suffering and insane plot twists in their lives for the last 60 years. There's something very appealing to that. Putting characters who will, by definition, be in conflict in a room together is one of the most obvious engines for story. Despite obviously being new and radical, it's also absolutely X-Men. Yeah. Like, you know, X-Men are always redeeming their villains. They're always, that's, that's... that is what, I mean, Morrison's position was, like, the big central thesis on some level of the Morrison run is, Morrison creates Cassandra Nova, the most mm. despicable villain in the history of the X-Men, and then Here Comes Tomorrow posits, but wait, if you get Cassandra Nova young, and you're able to teach her right and wrong, she could be the greatest hero that the X-Men could ever know. And even though she still did those things, it doesn't mean that she can't have a second chance. I think that's also, while I'm not a huge fan of how every writer afterward handled it, a little bit of what Morrison is doing with Quentin Quire is like the potential was there. You chose to be evil. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to be that. The cuckoos are sort of like a representation of all the different ways Emma could be while Emma is trying to decide who she wants to be. So there's a lot of that in the history of the X-Men. I mean, Emma and Magneto are characters who were folded in from being really horrible villains in their initial appearances (laughs) to being really essential heroic members of the team in the franchise. So there is a long tradition of it. But What I like most about Krakoa, and I think your work on Immortal so far underlines it, is that like just because you invite Mr. Sinister and Celine to your house, like we can get along. They're still 
exactly who they are. And there's only so much that you can force them to be productive members of society when that isn't really their MO. I mean, Sinister could be a very productive member of society as long as you want him to produce lots of clothes. Right, as long as you don't put any checks on what he's allowed to do within your society. Like, if there's crimes against humanity problems that you would rather not have, then he might be an issue. I like Mm. in Hellions at the end when Emma's just like, their appearances to keep up to Scott, like we need to clean this up, but also Essex is a cancer in this nation. And we have to do something about that at some point. Like we can't, you can't just let it fester. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, that's the fun of it. Like I get to obviously what happened just in X-Men. Like, mm-hmm. like, I mean, well, that, I so I was really glad we didn't record until after that, because yes, for people who are not caught up on issue 11 of Jerry Duggan's X-Men, the big reveal at the end of that issue, spoilers for X-Men 11 is that Dr. Stasis, the new Orcus villain who we've been following since the beginning of that run, who had a real vested interest in Cyclops for some reason and has been wearing a spooky glowing helmet that obscures his identity, is actually a Mr. Sinister, but with a club on his forehead, like the suit of cards, rather than a diamond. Implying to me, perhaps, a different Sinister system, right? That's interesting speculation. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) Well, particularly with the line that you gave him. Well, we'll get into that when we get to the Nazi stuff. I don't know how else to put it. We'll get to the Nazi stuff uh, after the break. The Nazi sigh. Big sigh, (laughs) yeah. Actually, I think now might be a good time to break for the character file on Nathaniel Essex, a.k.a. Nathan Milbury, a.k.a. lots of other names, a.k.a. Mr. Sinister, who has a really complicated publication history that I am going to do my best to carry the listeners through. You may have gleaned some of it, listeners, from earlier episodes, but basically Chris Claremont's initial conception of the character is completely different from the character we have now, and a lot of writers did really impeccable work to make those things jive, but then some other writers simply didn't care. So we're going to see what we can do. And uh, when we come back, after I've carried you from Uncanny X-Men to 12, which is not his first appearance, but the first time Sabretooth says his name, up through X-Men 11 and Immortal X-Men number two. Then we will return for more with Kieran Gillen. We will talk about Kieran's favorite sinister stories that he did not write, as well as some sinister stories that we're not super hot on. We're going to be nice, but, you know, we got to be, we got to do a survey. And then we will answer questions from listeners like you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Hey, everybody. We're doing things a little differently today because I'm excited as Connor Goldsmith, your host, to tell you about the podcast's extraordinary new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game, every comic fan's dream. In this mobile squad RPG, you can assemble a team of your favorite superheroes and supervillains, like Dr. Lorna Dane and the iconic Madeline Jennifer Pryor, to save the universe from cosmic threats like Apocalypse and Doctor Doom. Power up your favorite Marvel characters to complete missions, unlock special gear and other resources, and battle other Marvel fans in PvP modes like Alliance War in the real-time arena. Right now, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating their six-year anniversary with a special Deadpool event, and you can sign up using my unique link available right now in the description of every episode. You'll get free stuff in the game just for signing up through this promotion, with weekly bonuses and events all through this anniversary storyline. Log in every day to get special skins, rewards, and the brand new characters being released to celebrate six years of Marvel Strike Force. This is the game's most generous event to date, and I for one can't wait to see all the goodies I can unlock. 
This promo code works for every new user. Please follow the unique link in this episode description to download Marvel Strike Force so they'll know I sent you. Use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Have a blast with this immersive Marvel experience. Thanks to Marvel Entertainment and the team at Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. We now return you to the show. X-Men, X-Men. Nathaniel Essex, also known as Dr. Nathan Milbury and many other aliases, but best known by the sobriquet Mr. Sinister, is one of the most iconic X-Men villains. Created by Chris Claremont and Mark Silvestri, but ultimately given a very different backstory from the one Claremont intended, Sinister is a brilliant but amoral geneticist who is primarily concerned with furthering his eugenic theories of mutant kind's development. First, some real-world backstory. Claremont wanted the Captain Britain character Jim Jaspers to be the culprit behind the 1986 franchise-wide event, Mutant Massacre, in which the Morlock Society beneath Manhattan is slaughtered by the Marauders. But a legal dispute at the time between writer Alan Moore and Marvel UK allegedly precluded this. To fill the void in his outline left by the absence of Jaspers, it appears Claremont created two new characters. The cosmic being called the Adversary, who would eventually battle Jaspers' archenemy, the omniversal guardian Roma, in the event Fall of the Mutants, and Mr. Sinister, the shadowy architect of the mutant massacre. The name Mr. Sinister is first uttered by his minion Sabretooth in Uncanny X-Men 212, referencing the employer of the Marauders. In the following issue, Betsy Braddock is able to pull a shadowy glimpse of Sinister from Sabretooth's mind. In Uncanny X-Men 215, an unseen Sinister sends the Marauders after Madeline Pryor, the estranged wife of Scott Summers, a.k.a. Cyclops. They shoot her in the head, take her infant son, and leave a corpse that resembles her in her place. But unbeknownst to Sinister, Maddie has survived in a coma as a Jane Doe at the hospital. She awakens months later in the issue with Sinister's first true appearance, 1987's Uncanny X-Men 221, in which she's furious at the Marauder's failure and sends them out again to finish the job. Maddie defends herself, contacts the X-Men, and escapes with them, becoming their devoted ally until she sacrifices her life alongside them in Fall of the Mutants six issues later. Secretly, Maddie and the X-Men are immediately resurrected by Roma, but they choose to take the opportunity to fake their deaths and operate undercover from a base in the Australian outback. Sinister returns the following year in Uncanny X-Men 239, Vanities, where he bemoans the deaths of the X-Men before he could carry out all his evil schemes for them. He's accosted in his throne room by Malice, field leader of the Marauders. Malice is an energy being who possesses the bodies of others, and Sinister had tasked her with possessing retired X-Men Lorna Dane, a.k.a. Polaris. Now Malice finds she's unable to leave Polaris' body, and Sinister reveals this was his intent. He knew Malice and Polaris' energy matrices would interact in this way, binding Polaris to his service forever. This issue kicks off the franchise-wide event Inferno, in which a major retcon reveals Madeline Pryor is actually a clone of Jean Grey created by Sinister, who programmed her with false memories and used her to produce a child of the Summers and Grey mutant bloodlines. Sinister smugly introduces himself to Madeline as her father, but doesn't anticipate her newfound power. After accidentally making a pact with the demons Sim and Mastyr, Maddie has become the villainous and mighty Goblin Queen, a creature of Limbo. Madeline overpowers Sinister at his headquarters, the orphanage in Nebraska where Cyclops grew up, and retrieves her son, Nathan Christopher Summers. In the ensuing demonic conflict in New York City, most of the Marauders are killed. In the final battle, Madeline dies while fighting Jean Grey, and Jean absorbs all of Madeline's memories. Sinister, eager to cover his tracks, attacks Jean telepathically and begins destroying the Maddie memories one by one. The X-Men and Scott and Jean's team X-Factor are able to stop Sinister on the astral plane, and then Psylocke tracks him to the abandoned Xavier mansion, which he destroys in an explosion. With Malice's help, Sinister captures the heroes and explains his role in the life and death of Madeline Pryor. 
Sinister also reveals he experimented on Scott Summers as a child at the Nebraska Orphanage, where Sinister brought the Summers boys in the first place after detecting the manifestation of young Scott's mutant power. Ever since, he has manipulated events throughout Scott's life. The X-Men deduce that Sinister has in part sought to control Scott because he's secretly vulnerable to Scott's optic blasts, and with help from his brother Alex, Scott is able to apparently obliterate Sinister, leaving him nothing more than a broken skeleton in the ruins of the mansion. Two stray continuity points from Inferno. One, Madeline explains that Scott didn't like her choosing the name Nathan for their son because it was also the name of a childhood bully from the orphanage. Two, at one point, Sinister refers to Scott as Summers and calls him a sissy in a strange, childish way. He insists Summers has always been a sissy. What's the deal here, you ask? Well, Chris Claremont had a very specific origin in mind for Mr. Sinister that wasn't fully carried out on the page before his departure from the franchise. Sinister was intended to be the bully Nathan, an eternal mutant child whose aging was stunted by his power. Nathan would have created Sinister as a psychic projection, his childlike mind's idea of the ultimate villain. The new character Gambit, introduced not long after Inferno, was planned to be an aspect of Nathan as well. Claremont's explanations have differed over the years, but Gambit was either meant to be a similar psychic projection or an altered clone of Nathan deployed by Sinister to infiltrate the X-Men, who would eventually betray his creator and side with the heroes. Most of that never came to pass, but a few months after his death in the Inferno, Sinister's past was fleshed out in a Claremont backup story in classic X-Men 41 and 42, with art by Mike Collins. In this flashback to Scott's childhood at the state home for foundlings in Nebraska, Claremont manages to convey at least some of his ideas about the character. We follow Scott's relationship with Dr. Robin Hanover, a new doctor at the orphanage, and also a lady pilot, because Chris Claremont simply cannot help himself. Robin is the only staffer to pay proper attention to and care for Scott. We also meet young Nathan, a.k.a. Lefty, who's a similarly unpopular boy and is ostensibly Scott's only friend. But something about Nathan makes both Scott and Robin uncomfortable. After one of the bullies who attacked Scott and Nathan is telepathically driven to suicide in the night by Mr. Sinister, Robin begins to suspect something is wrong at the orphanage, and wrong with Nathan. She arranges to have Scott adopted by her friend Colonel Bogart and his wife Trish, but then she's seized in the night by Mr. Sinister, who brainwashes her into compliance and arranges to have the Bogarts killed in a plane crash. The clear implication in this story is that Sinister somehow was the boy Nathan, but the details aren't explained. After Claremont's departure from the franchise, Sinister abruptly returns from the dead in 1992's X-Factor 74 by Peter A. David and Larry Stroman. Now employing a new team of henchmen called the Nasty Boys, Sinister makes an alliance with Senator Stephen Shaffron, who has designs on the White House and is secretly an evil mutant. Sinister quietly plans to betray Shaffron, but honestly, don't worry too much about it. Sinister and his Nasty Boys tangle with the new iteration of X-Factor, now a government team directed by Valerie Cooper and led in the field by Havoc and Polaris. Polaris isn't possessed by Malice anymore because of Zaladane, but don't worry about it right now. At one point, Sinister shapeshifts into Cooper's ex-husband Edmund Atkinson, a polygraph expert, in order to gather intel. It's extremely unclear whether Sinister was just impersonating Edmund or whether we're meant to understand Edmund is yet another identity Sinister created. But the idea of Edmund always being Sinister is a huge headache, so this is probably just a trick. In the end, Senator Shaffron's plans are foiled, but the fact that Sinister survived the Inferno is revealed to X-Factor and the X-Men. Sinister then conspires with Strife, leader of the Mutant Liberation Front, who informs Sinister that he is a time-traveling future version of Nathan Christopher Summers, the baby of Scott and Madeline that Sinister spent so much time and effort producing. Strife promises Sinister a cache of data on the Summers Grey family's evolution over centuries to come, and in exchange, Sinister helps him kidnap Scott and Jean Grey by shapeshifting into Apocalypse. I... This is Executioner's song, guys, and you can just read it if you want. Sinister shows up for a bit and causes mischief, mostly. We covered this in the Strife episode. By the end of the event, Strife and his opposite number, Cable, actually the real Nathan Christopher Summers, have both apparently been killed, lost in the time stream. Sinister opens the canister supposedly containing the cache of data Strife promised him, only to find it empty. 
He's unaware that he has just released Strife's ultimate revenge, the Legacy Virus, an airborne, invariably fatal autoimmune disease that targets only mutants. Later that year, in the adjectiveless X-Men title by Fabian Niciesa and Andy Kubert, Scott is approached at his grandparents' home in Alaska by their longtime neighbor, Mike Milbury. Milbury turns out to be a false identity cultivated by Sinister, who's been keeping tabs on the Summers family for years. He demonstrates to Scott that he's actually totally invulnerable to Scott's optic blast, and the whole bit in Inferno was just a big fake-out or something. Don't worry about it. Sinister explains the legacy virus situation to Scott, because if mutants go extinct, it will really muck up Sinister's long-term scientific experiments. He also hints to Scott that Scott has more than one brother. The third Summers brother was intended to be Adam X, the Extreme, and Sinister keeps tabs on him for a while in various stories, but truly, do not worry about that. What's more important is that Sinister is focused on trying to cure the legacy virus. After he experiments on a patient under his Dr. Milbury alias, the X-Men locate his Forever Laboratory, a headquarters kept outside of time and space within a Tesseract. There he works with the young death-sensitive mutant Threnody, who has become primarily connected to the legacy virus. Sinister has invented technology to control Threnody's power, which otherwise drives her insane. Over objections from his teammates, Hank McCoy, the Beast, agrees to let Sinister keep Threnody because she can help in his research, and Sinister may have the best shot at actually curing the virus. Sinister then spends a while turning up for one-off stories. Over in the Cable solo series, he surprises Cable and Domino at Madeline Pryor's grave to do an info dump for Cable about him being the real Nathan and Strife being the clone. He then activates Strife's personality, which was hidden inside Cable after Executioner's Song, and you can go to the Strife episode for more on that. In Excalibur, Sinister sends the mercenary Sienna Blaze to secure Moira McTaggart's DNA map of her son Proteus. Sienna fails, but does manage to get some skin cells from Rachel Summers, which Sinister is very pleased to have. In X-Factor, Malice attacks Havoc and Polaris, trying to ensure she'll never be trapped in Polaris's body again. Sinister destroys Malice rather than allow her to eliminate his test subjects. Meanwhile, in the flagship title, Sinister tells Gambit that his debt to Sinister hasn't been paid yet. Mysterious! Then comes the 1995 X-Men Annual, written by J.M. DeMatteis and Ralph Macchio. This one is so, so weird. We learn in a flashback that back in the 30s, Nathan Essex was a socialite in old Hollywood, which, sure. He had a mansion out in the hills where he hosted lavish parties, and he embarked on a romance with a Jewish radio comedian named Faye Livingstone. Eventually, Faye discovered his secret laboratory and realized he was using her because he'd identified that her DNA contained the X-Factor, meaning her children would be mutants. Sinister held her captive for months, experimenting on her in horrific ways. But one night, perhaps guilty, he opened her cell and let her run away. Sixty years later, in the present, Faye is a dementia patient in a nursing home, and Nathan Essex visits her sometimes. They're attacked there by Cable's son, Tyler Dayspring. Do not worry about him, who is bent on becoming the true heir of Apocalypse. Kidnapping Faye, Tyler compels Jean Grey to link Faye's mind with Sinister so they can talk. Faye tells Essex she was aware of his visits, but unable to respond in her dementia. She believes he wants to make amends because he truly loved her. After she escaped from him, Faye never married or had children because she was afraid of what Essex told her about her DNA. Faye is content in the knowledge that she ultimately prevented Essex from achieving a weapon he wanted, but she also forgives him for what he did to her. Then she dies. Sinister pretends he doesn't care, but Hank McCoy can tell he's actually deeply affected. Like I said, Extremely weird story. Anyway, later that year in the Cable Solo, Sinister helps Genosian rebels battle the Sugar Man. Because he's mad the Sugar Man, a refugee from the Age of Apocalypse, has been using work derived from that of his home reality's version of Sinister. His battle with Sugar Man then leads him to the X-Man series, where he wants to know more about another AOA refugee, Nate Gray. Threnody claims she hasn't learned anything about him, but she's actually planning to use Nate to escape, and Sinister sends a newly cloned set of marauders after them. 
Back in the adjectiveless flagship title, now briefly written by Mark Wade, Sinister releases a supervirus on a train and battles Beast, Bishop, and Gambit. The Beast in this story is actually Dark Beast from the AOA, posing as Beast, but Sinister doesn't realize. In any event, we finally get the in-depth origin of Mr. Sinister in 1996's Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix by Peter Milligan and John Paul Leon, in which Scott and Jean travel back in time to the 19th century. Born Nathaniel Essex, Sinister was a colleague of Charles Darwin. He found Darwin's work inspiring, but believed it did not go far enough. At home at Milbury House, an estate owned by his wife's family, Essex endeavored to be a good husband and father to his wife Rebecca and son Adam, but was driven mad when Adam died in childhood from congenital disease. Pushing his science to the limit, he made a presentation before the London Royal Society that was so grotesque in nature he was expelled from the group. Eventually, he alienated Rebecca as well when, while pregnant with her second child, she discovered he had exhumed their son Adam's corpse and brought it to his lab for experimentation. Determined to continue his research, Essex hired his first set of marauders, the street criminal operators of a freak show featuring genetic aberrations. These marauders kidnapped homeless people for Essex to experiment on, including a young boy named Daniel Edge. They also discovered Ensabonur, Apocalypse, an ancient mutant recently awakened from centuries-long slumber. Apocalypse was pleased with Essex's work on genetic mutation and brought Essex to the Hellfire Club, where he secured funding for Essex's research. This is when Scott and Jean Grey Summers arrive from the future, sent by the Ascani Sisterhood to interfere with Apocalypse's plans. The Summerses implored Essex not to become Apocalypse's servant, and he initially listened to them. But then he returned to Milbury House, where he found Rebecca dying from complications after a sudden stillbirth. Essex begged her forgiveness, but before she died, Rebecca declared him disgusting to her. Truly sinister. Returning to Apocalypse, Essex allowed the ancient mutant to transform him with celestial technology into an immortal himself, taking the name Mr. Sinister. While he was happy to take the power, he quickly decided Apocalypse was a madman and had no interest in actually following him. He conspired with Scott and Jean to create a means of killing Apocalypse, but failed. While he understood Sinister had betrayed him, Apocalypse was wounded enough to require a return to his hibernation chamber. Scott and Jean returned to the future, their mission to prevent Apocalypse from rising early now a success. Meanwhile, the boy Daniel Edge emigrated to America, where he took the name Daniel Summers after the couple who had helped him and Essex's other victims. In a time paradox, Daniel is actually Scott's ancestor, and Scott has created his own family line, which Sinister will now obsessively track. A 1996 uncanny origin story written by Ben Robb retells Cyclops joining the X-Men back in the 60s, only this time incorporating the, Mr. Only this time incorporating the Mr. Sinister retcons into the story. In this version, Scott is compelled to run away from the orphanage supervisors because of what happened to the Bogarts back in classic X-Men 42. Meanwhile, in the present, Onslaught, don't worry about it. The key Mr. Sinister stuff is that he captures Nate Gray and tries to recruit him to help Sinister destroy Apocalypse once and for all, as Nate is an even more powerful version of Cable, not tainted by the techno-organic virus. Onslaught ends up taking Nate away from Sinister, so it's mostly a moot point. Around this time, we get some more flashback stories. X-Factor Minus One details Sinister arranging Alex Summers' adoption in order to isolate Scott. Sinister kept tabs on Alex, though, and experimented on him to prevent his powers from developing naturally. This explains retroactively why Alex didn't manifest until after college back in the 60s. In Uncanny X-Men 350, we finally get some answers as to Sinister's connection with Gambit. It turns out Gambit had once come to Sinister for help controlling his powers, and Sinister performed experimental brain surgery in exchange for a favor to be collected later. He ultimately collected by tasking Gambit with assembling a group of mercenary killers, the Marauders. Much like the Sugar Man's work on Genosha, Sinister had discovered that many of the Morlocks beneath Manhattan featured signatures of his own genetic experimentation. Don't worry about it, but this was because of another Age of Apocalypse refugee, the Dark Beast, who had been whipped back in time. 
Intent on retaining his intellectual property, Sinister wanted the Morlocks destroyed. Gambit led the Marauders into the Morlock tunnels, apparently not aware they were going to murder everyone, which I'm kind of skeptical, Remy, I gotta be honest. But anyway, that's what led to the mutant massacre, which Gambit then tried and failed to prevent. Back in the present, Apocalypse begins gathering the Twelve, which... We'll get to this in Apocalypse character file because this one is already pretty painful. In the 1999 Cable Annual, flashbacks show us Apocalypse woke up from hibernation again in London in 1899 and Sinister pretended to be loyal. Apocalypse had Sinister invent the techno-organic virus, which Sinister then used to try to kill Apocalypse, actually giving Apocalypse the control over it that he commands in the present. His treason revealed, Sinister ran away, seeking another way to destroy his master. In the present, Sinister tries to manipulate Cable, revealing he created Cable in the first place as the ultimate weapon against Apocalypse. When it turns out Sinister has other ulterior motives, because of course he does, Cable rejects him. A flashback story in Uncanny X-Men 376 further smooths over some of Alex Summers' strange Silver Age history by revealing Sinister experimented on Amit Abdul at Apocalypse's request. He spliced Abdul's DNA with young Alex's, creating the connection that Abdul would exploit back in that first Havoc story as the villain called the Living Pharaoh, aka the Living Monolith. In the present, the Twelve crossover proceeds, with Ahmet Abdul, of all people, as one of the cosmically significant Twelve. By the end of the event, Apocalypse is apparently destroyed once and for all, and Cable's future is apparently prevented and erased. This leaves Mr. Sinister without much to do as a character. Uncanny X-Men 379 and 380 build out something new, establishing that back in the 1920s, Professor Nathaniel Essex was a teacher at Oxford and the mentor of Herbert Wyndham, who would later become the High Evolutionary. In the present, Sinister manipulates the Evolutionary into launching satellites that disable the X-Gene worldwide. Secretly, Sinister modifies the satellites so they can be used to alter DNA in general, and disables the Evolutionary when he realizes Sinister is meddling in his work. The X-Men defeat Mr. Sinister and convince the High Evolutionary not to use the satellites again. In Ben Robb's X-Men Hellfire Club miniseries, a flashback to London in 1915 shows Sinister made a pact with Jacob Shaw, the second son of the aristocratic Shaw family. Unlocking Jacob's latent mutation, Sinister gave Jacob the power to murder his older brother Esau and become the patriarch of the Shaw clan. Jacob Shaw and his son Sebastian were therefore bound to Sinister in owing him their good fortune. Meanwhile, in the Gambit solo by Fabian Niciesa, Gambit and his shapeshifting ally Courier travel back in time to New York City in 1891, where they become embroiled in the controversy surrounding Amanda Mueller, a socialite accused of murdering her own children. Called the Black Womb Killer by the press, Amanda is acquitted after decisive testimony by her obstetrician, Dr. Nathan Milbury. Amanda's husband Daniel has abandoned her, taking their only surviving child with him. It is heavily implied that this Daniel was Daniel Summers from Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, and that Sinister organized his marriage to Amanda. Gambit suspects that Amanda and Sinister are working together, and that Amanda has allowed Sinister to kill and dissect her mutant babies. When Courier shapeshifts into a woman to investigate Dr. Milbury's gynecologist's office, Sinister realizes Courier is a mutant and runs a series of experiments. Though Gambit rescues Courier, Sinister has already managed to isolate Courier's X-gene and copy Courier's shapeshifting powers, implanting them in himself. When various shenanigans with the Thieves' Guild in this time travel adventure mean Gambit needs brain surgery, Sinister performs it and notices his own work already in Gambit's brain. Time loops. In the final issue of the series, it's implied that Sinister and Amanda Mueller might have created Gambit in the first place as part of their secret experiment, Project Black Womb. Back in the present, Chris Claremont returns to the franchise for the 2000 Revolution. In Uncanny X-Men 389, Charles Xavier remarks that he and Moira McTaggart attended Professor Essex's lectures during their time at Oxford. Niciesa, meanwhile, continues to develop the Black Womb subplot in his miniseries X-Men Forever. We learn that during World War II, the U.S. government launched the Black Womb project in Alamogordo, New Mexico, disguising the genetic research facility as a nuclear testing facility. 
Amanda Mueller, who was still alive but grotesquely aged, secretly directed the project with financial support from Sinister and employed a number of genetic science luminaries for her research on the X gene, including Charles Xavier's father, Brian Xavier, his future stepfather, Kurt Marco, their colleague, Alexander Reiking, and the precognitive archivist, Irene Adler. Then comes Weapon X by Frank Thierry. The Weapon X program has been reborn, and its director, Brent Jackson, has launched a death camp for mutants called Neverland. Sinister secretly begins working there as a geneticist under the alias Dr. Robert Windsor, performing grisly experiments on mutant prisoners. Windsor is sniffed down by Weapon X operative Sabretooth, who recognizes him as Sinister and blackmails him into helping Sabretooth escape his forced service with the program. World War II-era flashbacks in Weapon X depict Sinister as working for the Nazi Party's science division in Europe, experimenting on the prisoners at Auschwitz alongside the real-world war criminal Dr. Josef Mengele. We see Sinister's first meeting with John Greycrow, the Marauder's scalp hunter. Greycrow was an American soldier executed by firing squad for murdering his own army comrades. His mutant healing factor reanimated him, and Sinister recruited him as a personal assistant. At one point, Sinister made a clone of Namor? Don't worry about that. Sinister's supposed time at Auschwitz directly conflicts with other stories about his activities during World War II as Dr. Nathan Milbury, operations director of the Black Womb Project in Alamogordo, New Mexico. As Sinister had yet to develop his Forever Laboratories Tesseract technology, he really couldn't have been in both of these places at once. It's a big continuity mess. Anyway, back in the present, Sinister departs the Weapon X program, believing he's found all the data he needed. He uses it to create new mutant chimeras, but they're ultimately destroyed by Sabretooth when Greycrow, worried these chimeras are Sinister's new favorites, secretly gives him intel. It turns out Sabretooth's employer, who claimed to be one of Sinister's Auschwitz victims, is actually the ancient villain John Sublime in disguise, and made the whole thing up. So, how much of the Auschwitz stuff was true at all? Another flashback does show us that one of Sinister's journals was discovered at Auschwitz by American scientist Truett Hudson, one of the architects of the original Weapon X project, who then employed Sinister's notes in his work. Further flashbacks in this book show Sinister operating in Vietnam during that war, doing more evil experiments on the locals with help from Greycrow. Chris Claremont then picks up the Weapon X Auschwitz plot in his third volume of Excalibur, revealing that as a young man, Magneto was acquainted with a chalk-skinned doctor there whom the prisoners called Nosferatu. This doctor pretended to be sending prisoners to safety, a la Oscar Schindler, but actually used them as experiments before disposing of them. Gabrielle Haller, who was imprisoned at a different concentration camp, allegedly also encountered Nosferatu. Alongside the distressing Nazi stuff, this volume of Excalibur does provide us with a very funny detail about Sinister's past, which is that apparently Professor Essex was Moira McTaggart's doctoral thesis advisor. In the 2005 miniseries Colossus Bloodline by David Hine and Jorge Lucas, it turns out Sinister conspired with Grigory Rasputin, the historical figure, to strengthen the mutant genes in his bloodline, eventually leading over decades to the births of the X-Men, Colossus and Magic, and their older brother Mikhail. Absolutely do not worry about this. The only bit of particular interest is that in the present, Sinister helps Grigori's essence spread through his descendants and kills as many of them as possible so that Grigori can focus his essence into one of them and take over the body. Sinister tries to turn Mikhail Rasputin into this host, but Mikhail sacrifices himself to save the world. I mention this because it's similar to another Sinister scheme, Project Cronus, that we'll see unfolding soon. There's a Spider-Man story here where Sinister clones a mutant version of Kraven the Hunter, but this is not a Spider-Man podcast. That said, Kraven's about to show up in X-Force, so maybe it's mutant Kraven, I don't know. Back in the X-Books, it's time for Messiah Complex. Sinister figures out that the mutant Messiah is coming, the first mutant child to be born after the decimation. He and his marauders make an alliance with Exodus, another former herald of Apocalypse, and his acolytes. They begin eliminating time travelers and precogs so that the X-Men won't know the future, and Sinister tasks Mystique with betraying the X-Men from within. He doesn't anticipate, though, that Mystique will betray him, forcing him into skin contact with her daughter Rogue after the virus Strain 88 has supercharged Rogue's power. Sinister is killed instantly. Cable ultimately survives the event and takes the Messiah Baby, a girl he will later name Hope Summers, into the future for safekeeping. 
In Mike Carey's X-Men Legacy, flashbacks flesh out the Black Womb Project at Alamogordo, revealing Xavier's father and the other scientists allowed Nathan Milbury to experiment on their latent mutant children. They were recruited to the project in the first place by Sinister's agent Jacob Shaw, whose son Sebastian was also subject to this experimentation. Now that Sinister has died, the experiment, Project Cronus, activates, and all the test subjects become potential vessels for Sinister's power and consciousness. Charles' stepbrother Kane is protected by his juggernaut helmet, while it turns out Jacob Shaw commissioned a device to protect Sebastian. Carter Reiking isn't able to contain Sinister's power after being decimated and dies of a brain hemorrhage. This leaves Charles as the only potential host, and he begins battling Sinister for dominance in his own mind. It turns out Amanda Mueller, the Black Womb, still alive but positively ancient as her mutation makes her immortal but not unaging, had interfered with Project Cronus back in the day. Worried about her own failing body, Amanda experimented on herself, devising a variant of the process that would allow her to inherit Sinister's powers without having her mind taken over. She tries to kill Charles to make herself the only possible host, but she's defeated by Charles, Gambit, and Sebastian Shaw, who destroy the Cronus device permanently. While Project Cronus has failed, another failsafe activates, and another experiment, a woman named Claudine Renko, suddenly awakens as Miss Sinister. Claudine becomes an antagonist in Marjorie Liu's X-23 series, where she realizes Sinister's mind is slowly overtaking her own, and attempts to transfer her consciousness into Laura Kinney's body to escape. Sinister just ends up taking over Laura, but Laura is able to push him out with sheer willpower, apparently freeing Claudine from him as well. Then comes Kieran Gillen, who totally reimagines the Mr. Sinister character into the version we know today. Resurrecting himself through cloning, Sinister now embarks on a project of personal perfection, altering himself piece by piece in order to become the ultimate being. He uses celestial technology to seize control of the sleeping, dreaming celestial, using the power of its severed head, don't worry about it right now, to create an entire race of Sinisters. Sinister is a system, he proclaims. Sinister is a species. Now a hive mind, Sinister is able to manifest in a new clone as the Sinister Prime whenever he's killed. He telepathically battles with the now-grown Hope Summers, but falls prey to analysis by Emma Frost, as he's based his new tactical intelligence, one of his augmentations, on Cyclops' brain, and Emma knows Cyclops better than anyone. Sinister kills himself, knowing he'll come back, and turns up again with an entire city of Sinisters, a recreation of Victorian-era London underground in Alaska. Sinister attempts to harness the Phoenix Force as it arrives on Earth for the Avengers vs. X-Men event, creating six mindless new copies of Madeline Pryor in an effort to contain the cosmic power. Sinister and his Madelines battle the Phoenix Five, and while the Madelines do succeed in seizing the Phoenix, it quickly burns them out and destroys them. The Phoenix Five then reclaim the power and completely obliterate Sinister London, killing the entire Sinister system. Briefly, anyway. It turns out prior to his experiment with the Madelines, Sinister murdered the X-Men's publicist, Kate Kildare, and replaced her with a clone who was actually a sleeper Sinister. After the Phoenix Five are defeated, Kate, now Sinister, taunts Scott in prison. In A plus X number five, also by Kieran Gillen, he then tries to steal a DNA sample of the Asgardian god Loki from Doctor Doom. After a skirmish between the three, Loki decides he's content with Sinister having his DNA, believing Sinister as a creature of science could never unlock all its mystical potential. In the 2014 flashback miniseries Origin 2, also by Gillen, we see that by 1907, Sinister had set up shop in Canada. He encountered Logan, at that time a savage beast man living in the wilderness, and tried to purchase Logan from the carnival where he became imprisoned as an attraction. When the carnival's owner refused, Sinister killed him and began vivisecting Logan, pleased to discover a mutant test subject who regenerated after any experiment. Logan was rescued by Clara and Saul Creed, a pair of mercenaries who it turns out, by coincidence, are Sabretooth's older siblings. Do not worry about them, particularly. Clara is taken with Logan, and Saul, jealous, ends up conspiring with Sinister to return him to Sinister's custody. Sinister reveals this to Logan, who stabs him and leaves him for dead, before killing Saul as well. Back in the present, Sinister turns up in the Charles Soulpen series, Wolverines, acquires the recently deceased Logan's adamantium-encased corpse, and attempts to exhume it. Don't worry about any of this. He's beheaded at the end of the story and apparently killed again. He's fine again in time for Spider-Man and the X-Men by Elliot Kalin and Marco Faia, in which he makes a pact with the Jean Grey school student Ernst. 
Ernst agrees to get DNA samples of all the X-Men and their students in exchange for Sinister creating a body for her best friend Martha Johansson, a.k.a. No Girl, who is a brain in a jar. Spider-Man in the special class talks sense into Ernst and Martha and foils Sinister's plans to clone loyal new versions of the X-Men. Then comes the Inhumans vs. X-Men era, and I'm simply going to skip it. Sorry, don't care. Anyway, after some stuff you don't have to worry about in Hunt for Wolverine and the Iceman solo, Sinister turns up again in Matthew Rosenberg's run on Uncanny X-Men, in which the Office of National Emergency, the ONE, has developed a vaccine that can prevent mutant powers from manifesting. Sinister helps Dark Beast create an antidote, but is furious when he learns the X-Men have slaughtered the latest iteration of his Marauders. Merging with several other Sinisters into a giant Sinister, he battles the X-Men, but eventually gets bored and agrees to be remanded to the custody of Captain America. It turns out this Sinister is just a clone, not the Prime Sinister, so don't worry about it. In the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, it's revealed that at some point in the past, Sinister began his Sinister system much earlier than we previously thought. He created a version of himself with an X-Gene, stolen from the fallen X-Man John Proudstar, but wasn't happy with the ostentatious campy weirdo that resulted. This mutant Sinister then murdered the previous Sinister, making himself the new Sinister Prime. This new Sinister, notably, has the Gillen characterization, quietly explaining why the character changed so dramatically after the 90s. Mutant Sinister agrees to help Charles Xavier and Magneto with the Krakoan project, providing his database of all the world's known mutant DNA. He agrees to have his memory of the encounter erased until such time as Krakoa is ready to go live. The bargain infuriates Charles and Magneto's silent partner Moira McTaggart, who had specifically instructed them not to recruit Sinister. A major retcon establishes that Moira is secretly a mutant with the power of reincarnation. She obliterates and rewinds the timeline to the moment of her birth every time she dies, retaining all her previous memories. Now in her tenth and potentially final life, she does not trust Sinister and is enraged that Charles and Magneto have ignored her advice. In the present, Xavier unlocks Sinister's memory and uses his DNA database, in combination with mental backups created by Cerebro, to conquer death and establish the process of mutant resurrection through the powers of Hope Summers and four mutant comrades, a circuit now called the Five. With mutants now secretly immortal, the sovereign nation of Krakoa is populated and declares its sovereignty on a global stage, leveraging new miracle drugs to win the approval of various global superpowers. As mutant Sinister's chimera form has an X-gene, he's technically a mutant and is allowed to live on Krakoa. To secure the further use of his database and resurrection, he's even offered a position on the ruling government body, the Quiet Council of Twelve. Sinister is forbidden from producing clones, but it's quickly revealed that he is continuing his research in secret. In particular, he's creating more chimeras, something Moira has warned Charles and Magneto is a harbinger of doom. Around this time, a flashback story by Frank Terry called Ruins of Ravencroft Sabretooth establishes that in 1909, Nathaniel Essex was directing the Ravencroft Institute for the Criminally Insane in Westchester, New York, where he and Sabretooth tortured Wolverine. Do not worry about this story. In limited series Fallen Angels by Brian Edward Hill and Simon Kudransky, Sinister manipulates the resurrected assassin Kanon, the second Psylocke, and enhances her powers for her battle with the artificial intelligence Apoth. While Kanan's long-lost daughter is killed by Apoth, Kanan is able to secure Apoth's data, which she gives to Sinister as payment for his help. This leads into the ongoing series Hellions by Zeb Wells and Steven Segovia, in which Sinister is tasked with supervising a squad of troubled mutants having difficulty acclimating to Krakoan society, including Alex Summers and John Greycrow. These new Hellions are supervised by Kanan, whom Cyclops knows to be a noble person. Unfortunately, Sinister knows he can manipulate her. Within Apoth's data, he's discovered the only existing copy of Kanan's daughter's DNA and brain patterns, and he tempts her with the idea that he might be able to somehow resurrect the girl even though she's not a mutant. As the Hellions carry out their ostensibly therapeutic duties, Sinister directs Kanan to help him create an illegal clone farm. When Sinister uses this farm to cross his own genes with those of the vile Araki sorcerer Tarn the Uncaring, don't worry about him right now, a sleeper agent within the Hellions is activated. Empath, who's actually working for Emma Frost. Empath forces Havoc to destroy the facility, killing the Sinister Tarn Chimera, but also obliterating the only data on Kanan's daughter. 
Given his political importance on Krakoa, Sinister is not punished for his transgressions, though it becomes clear the rest of the Quiet Council is not eager to tolerate him further. After the 2021 Inferno event reveals Moira's true nature and evil intent to the Quiet Council, she's depowered and killed in the follow-up event X-Deaths of Wolverine. While the mutants are unaware that Moira has actually uploaded herself into a new robot form, Sinister becomes the lead of Kieran Gillen and Lucas Vernek's new series, Immortal X-Men, depicting the inner thoughts and political gamesmanship of the Council. In the first issue, we learn that Sinister has created several clones of Moira since her death, artificially aging them to use them as save points. When something doesn't go his way, he kills a Moira and resets the timeline to the point at which it was cloned, downloading data from the Moira's brain so that he can learn what went wrong in the previous timeline. As of Immortal X-Men number one, he has already done this 26 times. We also learned that Essex knew Irene Adler as early as 1919, when she delivered a baleful prophecy to him in Paris. Meanwhile, over in the X-Men flagship title written by Jerry Duggan, the new villain Dr. Stasis, a masked scientist who serves as the human-slash-resources director of anti-mutant supergroup Orcus, launches a campaign of terror on Scott Summers, attempting to expose the secret of Krakoan resurrection. In the most recent issue, number 11, his helmet is destroyed to reveal that he is another version of Mr. Sinister, this one featuring a black club on his forehead instead of a red diamond. Two sinister systems at work? An insane Moira McTaggart transformed into the first of the true Homo Novissima, bent on destroying her former species? A whole bunch of Moira clones gestating in Sinister's lab? Sounds like a lot of drama. But Nathaniel Essex wouldn't have it any other way. X-Men, X-Men. Small can of cider. Love to, uh... that. I love that. I would join you, but it is 9.25 in the morning, so we're not No, gonna... no. We must have our limits. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually going to leave that in, because that's funny. Uh, <laughs> welcome back. We are back in the season three premiere of Cerebro with Kieran Gillen. For people who do not keep up with Cerebro on Twitter, the next several episodes are going to be pretty exciting. Questions are closed for a couple of them, but... Coming up next week is Nyla Rose and Steve Orlando on John Proudstar, a.k.a. Thunderbird, who they just triumphantly really brought back in uh, Giant Size Thunderbird, a one-shot that I loved, and who Al Ewing is using in X-Men Red in fun ways. Then Steph Williams returns to the podcast for an episode on Cecilia Reyes. And then Abigail Brand with Al Ewing. Questions are still open for Al. The others will have been recorded by the time you hear this. I will be announcing the next slate of four after the Thunderbird episode drops. So keep an eye on the Twitter and I'll also say it at the end of the Thunderbird episode, but I'm just keeping you posted because I know people like to write in questions. I got more questions for this episode with Kieran than for any other episode to date. And so we are not going to read them all. Just preemptively letting you know, because <laughs> I'm not going to do that to a very busy man with a newborn. Yes, we'll do a speed well, round. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll at a certain, <laughs> at a certain point, I, 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 I'm going to try to do as many as possible. So at a certain point, I'm just not going to read the question. I'm going to say, so-and-so asked this. What's the answer? Maybe. Yeah, exactly. First, though, I'd love to dig in a little bit to the sinister tales of the past Stories that you like. I know that you just did a big reread of like all the sinister stuff because you were revisiting the character. What's some of your favorite stuff with this guy? It's hard because it's like this. I haven't reread Inferno, for example. And that's oh, you gotta. Read, you know, actually, you know what I mean. Like, I read Inferno like twice a year, but that's a me problem. And I think that's <laughs> yeah. The reason I haven't is because it's not. It's not key to the bits of sinister. It's not really me, your sinister, it. right? I think you should reread the scenes with him and Madeline. Are no, no, that's, that's what I want to, yeah. definitely. Yeah, yeah. 
especially because I'm doing some Jean Grey stuff in uh, Judgment Day. Mm-hmm. So, like, obviously there's all that stuff in there. And he's just very, like, bitchy with her in that, in a way that... Not, and with, with Polaris, Malice. Like, he, he has a bitchiness to him even there that yeah, I think yeah. does carry through to your version. Also, like, the first time we, like, really spend some time with him in Vanities, that first issue of Inferno, where he's thinking about all the X-Men and looking at, like, little crystal figurines of them he's made is very camp to me. He's, like, on a throne looking at, like, a handmade crystal figurine of Betsy Braddock, and I'm like, same, Mr. Sinister, honestly. It's like his good little collectible. Yeah, exactly. Like Mr. Sin- Mr. Sinister is nerd. Yeah. I just gotta have them all. It's you great, know? right? <laughs> And he's pissed that he never really got to meet Psylocke. He's like, they all died before I got a chance to talk to her. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that Inferno sets the stage, but I, I, I get what you mean, which is that it's not as key to the later aspects of the character that you're working with, which is like the genetic research stuff that yeah. builds out over the 90s that you turned into, as you said, a goal for him, which is like achieving personal perfection, turning himself into a perfected genetic being, as opposed to the earlier plot, which had been like, let's make the ultimate mutant so I can kill Apocalypse, which is what the Gene mm-hmm. and Scott of it all was about and had sort of run its course by the time you were writing the character. In fact, that's definitely worth starting at that one. The Further Adventures of like... Further uh, Adventures. Uh, is, yeah, the Milligan story. Milligan's one of my favourite writers in the 90s. As in, his indie, like his Indian British stuff was really influential on me. Mm-hmm. And uh, Enigma is a book I, I will adore and ripped off at least twice. <laughs> um, but like, it's got, it's a really creepy thing. It abs- I mean, that's what I was reading and so much of my sinister comes from there intellectually mm-hmm. even if not even if not like in style but even there's there's bits of the style in there there's bits of like him going too far even the kind of the i've cut my, my, my i'm not feeling anything fantastic yeah and even like the john paul leon art is very different from the art in the time when you were writing but i feel like there's some like the darkness of it I think the darkness of like my sinister would be more clear if it was drawn by Leon. Yeah, Not in, I don't mean in a bad way, like because it's he's more he's more fun in different styles. Like Carlos is is, is great, but he's, right? He's, you get more of the fun of it. But if you had him in a kind of like that, in that sort of like very heavily inked kind of like yeah, the I, the vibe is there is what I'm saying. Even if the art yeah. style is very different, I'm doing another 19th century. I better not say this. I'm, I'm doing a 19th century like <laughs> sinistery kind of story, uh, and like. The the uh, the penny dreadful of it right. is very real. Yeah. You know what I mean? The whole story has got that kind of like it feels sinister and it's origin and it's origin and it's got a great apocalypse. <laughs> There's kind of that vibe too. I mean, I yeah, loved yeah, yeah. opening Immortal with that flashback to 1919. I'm a huge Irene Adler fan myself, and I'm very excited that she's back. But it's always fun to go back to historical sinister because he always knows more than the other characters, but not nearly as much as he thinks he knows. And so it's fun to check in with him at a specific moment in time where he only knows X, Y, Z things, right? Yeah, yeah. it's like, you know, young Sinister, essentially. Yeah, yeah. It's like young Sheldon. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Almost exactly. Really, Uh, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, I don't... I mean, Chrissy, my wife, heard me sort of doing interviews for Immortal, and uh, she heard me describing the joy of Sinister that, you know, He's smart, but he's not as smart as he thinks he is, and it's and, and will eventually fall on his face at some point. Mm-hmm. That's the, you know. Well, and that's Immortal One is him like I'm running this for the 26th time. I know exactly what's going to happen, and then Celine being like, "Not so, Essex. I think not." Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, the, the Fraser Crane of him. That's yeah, the kind of the that's absolutely. Like, you know, Amanda Mueller is the Lilla Sternin. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that another one I really care, the Mike Carey. Um, yeah, this is one we talked about the Mike Carey um, uh, Black Room Project stuff because Mike's just really good. Yeah, you know well, Mike's I mean? just brilliant. Like, so yeah, 
It's just like so. I mean, I don't want to. I'm not throwing like shade on anyone else in that way, but it's just really solid. Like when Mike starts writing a character, you just feel, oh, no, these are real psychologically profiled and in a real density to them. But also, that for me got the narcissism so much. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The invasion of the body snatchers of Sinister. Well, and it finally tied together a lot of stuff that because Fabian's Black Womb plot never reached fruition, had never made sense. Like, why mm. were Xavier and Juggernaut and Shaw and all of these other characters tied up in Sinister's machinations that had nothing to do with Scott and Jean? Like, what is this other thing? And so figuring that out establishing what he and Mueller were doing to some extent. That was a very useful addition. It was additive. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. that's what this is. I'm sure we're going to pick up with another question at some point, but um, the the most important stories are the stories that form continuity. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean human you know, as in like, if a story is by itself is never mentioned ever again, it's not as important for versus this. This is very how Sinister was trying to come back, you know? Well, I mean, we might as well get right into it before we yeah. get too far. Like the story that I think is not additive and that has caused no end of grief for people trying to write the character after it is the Weapon X stuff that retcons him into an active Nazi scientist during the 40s. And I think that one of the things that makes that for me, I mean, like, listen, people feel different ways about this. As a Jewish reader, my feeling on it is I think Sinister is more fun if we don't linger on that. And I don't want to linger on that because I don't think that's a particularly fruitful avenue for storytelling. I think that once you take it to a place of Mengele, there's just not really, it's not fun. Like there's nothing. Mm. I think that Sinister as a concept is already playing with so many racially unpleasant things about eugenics. I mean, he is a chalk white guy who is a eugenicist. It's there. I get the reason why you would take it there. But I think when you go super real world in that way, it sometimes burdens the story in a way that is not helpful to later writers. And so I think it makes sense to ignore that because I don't think that built out very much story and I think that Hickman with oh don't worry the Nazi sinister was that clone and we killed him and your joke about Storm doesn't like me and I can't blame her I used to be a huge racist which made me laugh I must say, I, that reference wasn't actually about his like World War Two stuff. It was explicitly he was a huge racist to an X Men. He was, yeah, yeah. You know, like I, I was talking about the clonalist stuff. Well, but that's like, but what know. I'm saying is like he's. I know, I know. What you're, so I agree with you saying, but you know, broadly, like, yeah, like saying I like I appreciated that you said sort of looked at the reader and said I understand that there are stories in which Mister Sinister is a crazy racist. Mm. That's not what this comic is necessarily about. The thing about Mr. Sinister is he is so delusional and narcissistic that, no, you can't actually cut racism out of your own brain with a surgical implement, (laughs) but he certainly (laughs) thinks you can, right? So to me, what that was saying was like, that's not necessarily what this Sinister story is Mm. about. But I want to acknowledge that I'm not ignoring it because the fact that Hickman makes it a pretty explicit Operation Paperclip parallel, the idea that people like, Sinister and Selene and Apocalypse are essential to the functioning of Krakoa as a nation is meant to echo the way that America, particularly, but most nation states, I would say to some extent all nation states, but the superpowers particularly, are states built on moral compromise and on what Tony Oliveira called the capaciousness of liberalism once on this podcast Mm. when talking about the X-Men's need to redeem their villains. Like, if you can bring the most despicable of your enemies into your big tent somehow, 
then it gives you more power over the situation, right? It's interesting. Like, I agree. It's like to do superhero stories, you do need a little distance to talk about what we're talking because of what, you know, like Jean Grey killed a planet or whatever. And we can't get too deep into that genocide or it's too real. But if the Membari actually died, we couldn't ever get past. Right. Dabari's not a real place, you know? Yeah. And. And to tell stories about the X-Men, we quite often need a little bit of distance to talk about certain things. And I think, like, it's impossible to... As you say, if you tie it Sinister too close to that, you can't use Sinister in many useful right. way. Uh, because those people really died. And yeah. I don't, you know, and it's like, it, we don't want to... You don't want to use the Holocaust glibly. You just don't. Particularly yeah. in the fucking X-Men, where mm. Magneto's Holocaust backstory, devised by Claremont, is a really important moment in superhero comics and is an engine of real empathy. I mean, for a lot of people, I think, like young people who were reading superhero comics who are not Jewish, Magneto was one of their first real encounters with a survivor mm. of that time. And that is a valuable thing. So I think that the Weapon X plot that Claremont does pick up on is like, well, okay, if Sinister's a Nazi, I'm going to reference that in, in some of my stuff. But it's too close, I think. I think that it's much like how, for example, the Terra Verde plot that Ben Percy just did in X-Force obviously is about, on a bigger level, CIA intervention in Latin America and all of the horrendous mm. things that America has done in Latin America, South America, Central America. But Terra Verde, though it is a pre-existing Marvel location, is not a real Latin American country because it would be too much. It's important to be provocative and to ask these questions, but you don't want to be disrespectful, is I guess yeah, yeah. how I would put it. I, I know, I, I literally, I lost like... When X-Men launched, I immediately, like, that's why I deleted my Twitter. Yeah. Um, because I spent, it came out and immediately, it's just a couple of things I saw and it made me started thinking. And I, and I lost two hours sleep over right. really chewing over this. So I want, I've got an essay in my head, a significant essay from every single angle on this question, I think. And I may not be wrong, you know, explicitly at the top, it's I might be wrong. Yeah, we're not necessarily right. We're just coming at yeah, it yeah. from this perspective, right? But at least one of those angles was, you know, the, the concept of stolen valor, claiming you fought in a battle and you didn't. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways, tying supervillains too much to a real-world disaster is like stolen infamy. Yes. Like, it's something, and for me, there's almost something distasteful about it. Yes, I don't like when we, I mean, unless it's the point of the character. Like, I actually, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Fenris. I think they're great villains. All the Red Skulls. Yeah, you know? these are Hitler's buddies. Yeah. But a throwaway where it's like, Apocalypse is a great example. They keep Apocalypse mm. vague in terms of like what things he did in the past to direct human civilization. It's difficult because, I mean, it's I said earlier, like what is a character's core stories? Right. And like Sinister as a Nazi is like way, like in the, like it's, it's not a core story. No. Like, so down the it's so far down the list of things you've got to know about him. Uh, and, it and it's gilding the lily to some extent because it's enough yeah. to say. He's a colonial Victorian scientist who is a eugenicist. You don't need to take it to the literal place of Auschwitz. You just don't. Yeah. I think for me, it's like, that, for me, that's actually quite an important thing to keep him. Like, this is very much my sort of take. As in, it's, I mean, second, it's Nazis. It's like, unless you're frankly a fucker. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's beyond, we've put them over there. Right. As I know, it's not our problem. It's the Nazi problem. And keeping, uh, keeping sinister in the British Empire and America. Well, yeah, as a British writer, it must be more interesting, I would think, to write about Sinister as part of the legacy of British imperialism as opposed yeah. to the sort of shorthand of Nazis, which are bad because we all know that yeah. Nazis are bad, right? 
how complicit liberalism was in eugenics. Right. Like, eugenics was so much more popular. Than anybody thinks about now, unless it's something they've read about. It was a very mainstream position until very recently, and in many circles still is. I mean, especially, I mean, it's like the Nazis is the thing, I wouldn't say ruined eugenicism, but, you know, my, it's a thing that made eugenicism beyond the pale in conversation, and rightly so. Right, yes, <laughs> you know? but before that, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, you look at the history of Planned Parenthood, even. Like, you look at a lot of initiatives that were more left, even, hmm. that still were based on a premise of we need to improve the gene pool. I mean, like, that was a mm. thing that people believed, and it's a thing that came out of Darwin, not intentionally on Darwin's part, but I think that the way Further Adventures links Sinister explicitly to Darwin is useful in the way, because Sinister yeah, yeah. is the worst excesses of social Darwinism, right? Mm. I, I agree with all of that, and I think that's, um, you know, I think that's, you know, and that all that stuff is useful. I mean, there's the other one. I mean, this is the continuity nerd answer, is that I don't think Sinister can be in Germany because he was in America. He, it also doesn't Georgia. make any sense. We know where <laughs> like, he was, but, you know, like, whatever. It's neither yeah, yeah. here nor there. I mean, that's why the cloning answer makes it much simpler. It's like, I think that it's, was a different Sinister. That's my headcanon. Then he can be in two places at once. Do you know what my other... This is a my, this is minor one, and it's not anything we'd ever say to write in a comic. But it's like, I think putting Sinister working with Mengel implies that Mengel was somehow a good scientist. Because Sinister is a good genetic. Sinister actually knows what he's a, doing. You know what I mean? So that's actually the thing that bothers me most about it. Like, I don't like it because I think it's destructive to the character, and I am very much a proponent of, like, Hickman's mm. additive, not destructive mentality. But I also, and I just, I don't think this was Thierry's intention at all, but... Oh, no, no. The suggestion of Mengele's assistant was Mr. Sinister is that Mr. Sinister, who we know is right about the X-gene most of the time was there validating Mengele's theories on genetic development, which were, in actuality, complete nonsense. So, like, that's, yeah, yeah. The, that's the thing I also don't like about it, is I think that the danger, and this is something X-Men, by virtue of the X-gene as a metaphor, sometimes can lean into in ways that are not great, which is the idea of eugenics as a real thing. I mean, the idea that... Scott and Jean's bloodline will produce the Messiah is a eugenic concept that Sinister mm. puts forth that proves to be maybe true. I actually think one of the great innovations that clearly I don't think was the intention at first, but the reveal as it goes on that Hope is not actually biologically a Summers or Grey at all is really helpful because if the ultimate mutant messiah, as it turns out, is Hope and the role of Rachel and Nathan was to ensure, like Rachel ensures Nathan survives, Nathan ensures Hope survives, and Hope is the messiah, then it's sort of the last Jedi take on Star yes. Wars, which I liked better. I love, I love, I think it was a, a necessary and poetic statement. And, and I'm, then me. they walked it back, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Cowards. I, so I know. Say that. No, yeah, I'm leaving it in because that's true. <laughs> But, like, the idea that the greatest, most powerful mutant could arise from any bloodline yeah. is, I think, important as a, as a counterbalance to Sinister's experiments that obviously can work. Like, you can produce an Omega-level mutant. Moira McTaggart, in the House of X retcon stuff, we learned, created Proteus and Legion very intentionally by cross-referencing Gabby Haller and Joe McTaggart's genetic profiles with her own and Charles's. These are things that can be done. And that's why I think you have to be careful, because if you have Sinister explicitly working with real-world eugenicists, the implication, as you point out, is that real-world eugenicists had a point about other eugenics, which is literally just scientific racism, and we know that that's not real. So... It is that kind of... And of course, this is the... Uh... 
the podcast you do about Jay. Yeah, well, that's. I was just going to say this. This ties back to what Jay Adden and I talked about when I guest hosted Jay and Miles explain the X Men recently. Thank you, Kieran, for putting that in your newsletter. That was very sweet of you. Uh, you did identify me as Connor Smith, but I was like, I knew. What oh, you sorry. Meant. No, it's okay. It's fine. <laughs> I was like, that's the really anglicized version of. Uh, of my name. Because <laughs> it was Goldstein ancestrally, and then it got turned into Goldsmith. If it had gone fully to Smith, it would be like, what kind of Smith? You have no idea. But anyway, I digress. We ended up on a whole long tangent because there were people on Twitter who had attacked me for liking Celine because of one arc that Tanahasi Coates did where she works with Hydra on a gig. And then Sinister is the big one where people are like, how can you appreciate these? And the answer to that, and, and people should go to that Jay and Miles episode if they want to hear my long opinion on this, um, because Jay and I ended up like talking about it for about 20 minutes. Mm. Mr. Sinister is not real. He's not a real person. He doesn't have an actual history. The canon is what serves the story. This is a fandomification of narrative that I think can be unhelpful, which is deciding that if everything in this shared universe has to be canon, then we have to think about every single detail of it all the time. I don't think that that's a good way to think about ongoing shared universes written by 500 different people. What I think matters in a Kieran Gillen comic about Mr. Sinister is how Kieran Gillen writes Mr. Sinister. That mm -hmm. isn't to say that previous stories don't matter. And I think it's good that Hickman was like, I'm about to use Mr. Sinister as a more comedic character. Let's explicitly go, by the way, the really, really execrable Sinister that there's no way to use in a fun way in a story. I'm going to kill him off in this issue really quick so that we can make it clear this is the fun Sinister Sometimes you have to be willing to do that and you have to be willing to sidestep it. But also, I do think that the impulse in fandom sometimes to castigate people for enjoying a villain is misguided. I think it's okay that I, a gay Jew, I think Fenris is a great antagonist team. I think Viper, who is a Hydra high-ranking lady, is a hilarious villain. I love reading about her. I think the Red Skull, who that one, he's a little tough for me. Yeah. But there are some stories where I'm like, that was really good, you know? And you need to allow other people to have relationships to fiction. Depiction is not endorsement, right? Mm. And just because we're depicting the X-Men saying, we need Sinister, we're going to deal with what comes from that. It's not Jonathan Hickman saying, yes, a great thing to do politically is to compromise with eugenicists. Like, that's not... Mm -hmm. what's being said in the comic you know what i mean and i just wish people would maybe be a little more generous in their approaches to that question i think it was one of the things uh, i forget who actually said it, it was about like take so even just villains it's kind of taking the worst thing a hero has done from the wikipedia page right and using that to, as the first thing you open in conversation with and that's like you've got you, that, that's a very aggressive tactic and very like trying to shut down conversation and you know there's something like quite it's that you know it's not not you know it's quite upsetting because it says you happen to you like you i'm just like this this awesome vampire lady and suddenly you're being called how can you stand i'm just talking about this fun you know. ancient vampire and you're like she worked for the red skull one time and i'm like well who hasn't in the marvel universe like he's one of the big bad guys in the marvel universe and because there was a time when they were invested also in de-emphasizing hydra's connection to nazism because hydra was the big captain america villain you want to keep using them without poisoning every character who touches them for certain writers hydra has nothing to do with nazism so it's just a really complicated thing and i I get why it's touchy because 
it's real. And that is mm. touchy in a way that Apocalypse is not as touchy because he's simply an unreal yeah. enemy. If you're 2,000 years old and you were, you were killed in the Bronze Age collapse, yes. That's a long time ago. It's a little bit different from something as recent. The Holocaust is not the only thing I think people need to be careful with. I think that there are cavalier uses in superhero comics of African chattel slavery, cavalier uses in superhero comics of the genocide of Native Americans. Like, there's a lot of stuff where I think it's important to understand that it's not a theoretical sci-fi fantasy story. Mm. It's like a real and ongoing thing that is being experienced by the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of these people who were not that long ago. And I think that that's where you have to take a lighter hand. And I think that shifting Sinister away from representing real-world genocide into... He represents the excesses of science that can be bigoted or unfair or fucked up without it being like, hey, your trauma person who might be reading this, this character represents that. It's definitely the kind of, I mean, how John did it. And, you know, I did a tiny nod. And in fact, I'm very subtly like, I'm going to do a story in a Black Woman. First capture in 1943. So mm-hmm. explicitly, this sinister is here then. This sinister was in America doing the Black Womb Project in World War II. Yeah. We know that for a fact. So yeah. it, it, you know. But what you don't want to do is explicitly, explicitly talk about the the, the Holocaust episode because you're you're, you're re traumatizing people again who don't. It's know like it, we don't want I mean? to go like... back into it. But if you point out that he was doing evil eugenics experiments in America at that time. Mm. It just doesn't make sense. And it never made sense that he would be mm-hmm. in Germany at that time or in Poland at that time. So yeah. I'm glad that we're just brushing past it. But we had to address that because it's the number mm-hmm. one question people ask about. The number two question, and let's just tackle this, this tough stuff. <laughs> so, we talk, for, talk for 40 minutes. Yeah, like, right. And then <laughs> we'll, then we'll, number two. <laughs> yeah, right. Like just, but just for, uh, this is more of like a tight five, I think. Because I got a couple of questions about it and I decided like not to ask them. The idea of like, is it problematic to queer code villains or to take a character like this and make him gay or whatever in the sense that historically speaking, queer coding of villains, like there's a long history of that. Is that a factor that you thought about? Is it something that you think? Of? I mean, you are a queer person yourself. So this is something that you think about. I'm of the position personally that it's fine, it's, if, as yeah. long as you're thinking about it. But I'd be interested in your take. I must say, the thing that when I first, you know, you know, rebooted Sinister, essentially, uh, I was thought, yeah, I can, I can imagine I'm going to get that critique. And I got it, I've got it always far less than I thought it would. And obviously some people have said it, yeah. but very few have. And I think the reason why is that the classic queer coding of villains is about they are villainous because they are queer. Right. And this is not, you know, there's never ever that sense with Sinister. Sinister's queerness is, is amazing. Yeah, Sinister's <laughs> just queerness a, is just the best thing about him. Right, like the exactly. fun thing like, about Sinister is that he's a Noel Coward character. The bad yeah. thing about Sinister is everything else. Yeah, yeah. so it's definitely, it's the separating the style and the content in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that kind of like never ever making the idea. I mean, that, that's, a, that's my, I can definitely imagine how people would feel differently. But that's sure. how I've always approached it in terms of like, um, you know, never demonize uh the performance right or like the, the identity in that way and it's like um and that, that's where most of course when people start using that indirectly yeah does that make i think i don't think i need no, to say I, more I, think, I think that's no, kind I of think like that's my feeling, it and like know. for me it's also 
let gay people be evil. Like I like I Yes. <laughs> like listen, I think that when you don't want to let characters have certain marginalizations, it is limiting not only to the characters, but also to the group you're talking about. It's an overcorrection to say that because lots of fairy tale villains and whatnot are historically queer or gay coded, that we therefore should never do it again or we should fight against it. I feel the same way about the barrier gaze trope, like the idea that we mm. can't kill gay characters. I vehemently disagree with that. I think that you shouldn't kill gay characters for shock value in those tropey ways. But if a character has to be off limits because they're gay or black or whatever, then it limits their ability to participate in the story. They need to be at risk just as much as any other character. The problem is when only those characters are the ones being, it's the problem is the women in the refrigerator. The problem is mm. not Gwen Stacy. The problem is the 50 more that follow in the wake of that Gwen Stacy story made a splash. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's so much of the problems. No pun intended. She fell off a bridge. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> she didn't splash. He caught her. It was, but you know what yes. I mean. It's that Spider-Man. He's, anyway, yeah. he, um, this is not a Spider-Man podcast. Structural problem. It could be so with, uh, of course, I've been getting on with Maddie. Well, yeah. I mean, and I loved that Zeb got asked that on this show before the free comic book day issue came out. He was like, uh, uh, uh. Yeah, I'm delighted by that. I am too. I am too. A lot of that structural as well, yeah. you know, especially in periods when you had so many more lead characters. Uh, that meant that all the supporting cast weren't, were, that's where you had diversity and that's where the most often... And that's where people off. tend to die to impact the hero, right? Yeah. yeah. If none of the women are superhero characters, then they're more likely to be the ones in distress. If mm. the black characters or gay characters only exist as the hero's friend, the hero's friend is who a villain is going to kidnap and torture. Like that is sort of a thing that is structural that is now less structural and i think the fact that we have like north star was leading a book so it's okay that there's this fruity villain also like you know like i don't have a huge problem with that provided there are multiple representations going on at the same time that was always the thing with wicked divine in that um we have a almost completely queer cast yeah that allows you to have you have just more you know the more different people having the group right different sorts they can of be good or evil because you've got yeah. enough of them that there isn't a scarcity problem where it seems like this one minority character is standing in for a whole community exactly that the other thing with sinister of course uh, specifically it was already there and i'm just turning up the it volume. is already there and you also yeah, yeah. and this is like there are people who feel certain ways about coding and whatnot but sinister also doesn't really talk about any of that ever it's more yeah. a sontag style performance of camp or a butlerian performance of yeah. gender and stuff like if he's gay it's more of an aesthetic than it is something where you feel like he is like part of a minority culture he's certainly not like in he's not in the gay scene you know, and he's never you know, said I'm gay. Sinus is like a drag character in that way. That, that's right, how, that's exactly. How he feels, you know, like I mean, that's very much how I feel about him. As in, it's the character. He's a uh, he's because he was trying to become invulnerable. That's kind of the I, I got rid of everything that was weak of me and was left for this. It's a drag character. There's something about him that is fully performative. You never feel like he is representing gay people in the way that Mystique and Destiny do for example. Mm. And so that's something that you need to bear in mind. Like these are two queer women when you're writing those characters because they do feel representational. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, writing the writing the Irene issue of, of uh, Immortal was it was a great joy. But he explicitly writing that, especially writing like two uh, two queer women who got together in the late ninth century. Well, right, you know, so, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. And was spe- and a German woman and an Austrian Jewish potentially woman. Mm. There's a lot of stuff there that's really interesting yeah. to me. But you look at the flashback stories for them that people have done ever since they were allowed to make that explicit. And like Teeny Howard's story last year in the Pride Anthology is a story about like, this is a story about lesbians in Victorian London. Your story mm-hmm. that you've already told the, the flashback with them in the first issue of Immortal, like it's about them being a couple. Sinister's flashback stories are not about like, here I am with Oscar Wilde having a chat. Like it's not, <laughs> he's not in the life. You know what I mean? It doesn't feel like a part of his character that is representational. It's just that he is a campy drag character. I think that's fine. I don't think that it always needs to be on the surface or more to the point. I think sometimes it can just be on the surface and doesn't need to be something we get too deep into. I think I would concur with that. It's it's one of those things I said, I've always been surprised he got critiqued less for this. Like I thought it was going to, you know, but I'm I'm glad not, you know. It's not as much of a flashpoint for discussion as the Weapon X Nazi stuff. And what's what's tragic to me about that is like, and, you know, this is not to insult anybody who worked on, nobody tries to make bad comics ever, but that is not a book that is particularly well loved. So it, it does feel very much like checklisting, like in in order to argue with other fans about liking yeah. something i do this is one of the things i did wonder is how many people have read those comics no one almost you know it's I mean? just that people and if wikipedia did not exist that's what i'm saying is it, yeah exactly it's something that endures because fandom wants it to endure not because it has endured in the comic because it's not a comic that anybody really cared about or read particularly mm. and that has only been more harshly criticized in the years since. So uh, it's just one of those things. It, to me, it's very much like, does everyone who writes Nightcrawler have to talk about the Draco? Because I don't think we should force them to do that. I just don't, unless we want to fix the Draco, but that's not my business. I'm just saying, if every person who writes Nightcrawler was forced, if the fandom was like, why aren't you talking about the fact that his father's a biblical demon from ancient times and yada, it's like, because that story sucks. Mm. It's like I've written enough stories which were like actually good, bad, and indifferent, uh, and they just weren't picked up again. Right, and that's fine because that's that, that's what this is. What, this is coming back to right what I was saying right at the beginning in terms of the stuff that's important is the stuff that's important. <laughs> and like, you know, here's another example, and this is not even like a bad comic necessarily or a comic that I don't like, but like Colossus Bloodline, where Sinister has a long game oh, God, yes. plan with Grigory Rasputin to create a mutant line through his genes featuring the Essex Factor and all of that stuff. Guess what? Nobody cares about that comic. So mm. it never has to come up again. Now, if you want to throw it in there somewhere, have at it, because that's your right as someone who gets to play with all this old continuity. But I don't see people arguing about, like, Sinister's complicity in czarist Russia, mm. because that- guess what? <laughs> Nobody cares about that comic. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things, when stuff has become obscure enough, like, you have to reestablish it all. It's like, the old Emma Frost is a gen- genius electrical engineer or whatever. Right. Like, you would have to establish that fact if she ever started doing science again. <laughs> yeah, you know? no, exactly. Like, like, Scott was a broadcast journalist for a minute in the 60s. If you wanted Scott to get a broadcast journalism job, you'd have to remind us that that was ever a thing because yeah, yeah, yeah. it hasn't been a thing in a long time. Yeah. In fact, actually, the educational aspect, like, Leah did bring up Lorna's geophysics degree to remind people that that's a thing because then it was a thing that she could use. Like, sometimes that's 
useful. Oh yeah. But there are other times when it's like, just let that be in the, in the pit somewhere. So now that we've talked about all of that stuff, uh, given that we are at like an hour 45, I'd love to just real quickly, are there any other sinister stories that you really love that you would just like to shout out or mention that are influential to your work? And then we will get into the listener questions. I wouldn't say influential, but Age of Apocalypse, like, mm. he goes for it. You know what I mean? If you see Sinister as a supervillain, as an, um, you know what I mean? Like, Sinister, like, I mean, some stories I always think he feels a little, he's a little small, like he's making, like, a few Frankenstein monsters or whatever. Right. Age of Apocalypse is a grand scale, for sure. Yeah, that's that's the sort of, okay, there you can see the influence, as in, you know, I've got Sinister under the ground making kingdoms of, like, Sinister people. Yeah, it's that very kind of, AOA, for sure. You know, so the AOA scale of him. And he's, and he's a good villain there as well. That's his best stuff in the 90s, yeah, I think. Yeah. You're like, oh, okay, yeah, Sinister with, like, unchecked power would be really troubling. Yes. <laughs> like, you know, that's, that's all, actually, the one thing that, not say it doesn't work, is, like, uh, is the twist of, oh, who's this person who's turned up trying to join uh, uh, X-Man? Yeah, that doesn't <laughs> quite like... work for the reader. I think it's supposed to be dramatic irony, though, right? Like, I hope so. Know I, was, who I, was, it is. I was reading that, and I've, got, I've only read it. I said, obviously, I've come to comics relatively late on that. Yeah. So I was reading that thinking, is this meant to be a twist? He's got a diamond on his forehead, doesn't he? Like, from the get-go. <laughs> it's so, close to, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, you know. Yeah, I do like the idea of him wearing... um glasses like clark kent with a little diamond yeah. i'm not i'm not mr sinister like. all right well i'd love to get into the questions because we do get a bunch of them and i'd like to get through as many as we can if your question isn't read it's not that i don't love you it's that a lot of you ask similar things or it was something where i was like that would spark like a 45 minute conversation of its own that we just don't have time to get into so i'm going to try and keep it Tight. So, Colin James writes, Dear Connor and Kieran, Nathaniel Essex has been cloning OBGYNing and miscellaneously sciencing for almost 40 real world and 200 616 years. Why isn't he Dr. Sinister yet? Is it imposter syndrome? Can he not find a single institution that will validate his Montessori-esque education? What's going on? <laughs> also, for Connor, have you ever thought about doing a Cerebro Live at like a bar or something in New York? I say New York because that's where I live, but I guess LA would be fine too. Thanks so much, Colin. Well, first, I'll just answer the question for me. I am hesitant to do live shows because the lore intensiveness of this podcast means that sometimes there's like 10 seconds that you don't hear because I cut it out of editing where I go, shit, what issue was that? And I have to Google it. The other thing is that, and the conversation we just had is a great example. Sometimes we're talking about really touchy stuff because the X-Men is a franchise that touches on a lot of real world like oppression and political strife and trauma. And I worry that live, like if I can't, say a sentence a couple times and then pick the version mm. that I know is what I meant. I do worry sometimes about that. That said, stay tuned because there may be a Cerebro live experience of some kind happening in 2022 and you will find out more about that closer to. It's something I'm open to. It's just something I'm nervous about. I have an anxiety disorder. That said, stay tuned. More to come. Kieran, why do you think Mr. Sinister is Mr. Sinister and not Dr. Sinister? Apart from the Mr. Sinister assonance of it. Like, it's true because he's one of the few people who actually does have a doctorate. Well, and Dr. Stasis, who is a Sinister, as we now know, insists on being called Doctor, not Mr., which is very funny in retrospect now that we know. Like, he is, I think the answer, and we don't know this character very well yet, but I think that is Dr. Sinister. <laughs> I, say, I think that I think Sinister doesn't have to show it. That's for me, you know. Right. Like, yeah, I'm a doctor. I just don't want to be that guy, you know. <laughs> 
or he prefer you know he prefers assonance. It's, it's basically assonance versus. I think that's yeah. It. It's I a, it's think it's assonance thing. and consonance because it's the is is yeah, yeah. you know. So it's yeah. like here's the thing. He's a performer and he wants it to sound melodious. Mm. And Mister Sinister sounds great. Doctor Sinister is less impactful yeah, on that yeah. musicality level. Yeah, yeah. I think that is just it's just that that's what I do. I do like the idea of him just rolling his eyes at all the other people saying. I just don't need to mention I'm a doctor, you know. They know I'm a doctor. They know quite yes. well. They've read my work. They've read all my papers. Adam Levine writes, Dear Connor and Kieran, I tried to think of a really interesting and insightful question regarding Dr. Nathaniel Essex. I really did. However, the only question that I could think about was this. What's up with the red diamond on his forehead? Does it serve some sort of purpose, like the Vision's solar gem? Or does he wear it for aesthetic reasons? Hell, he even named his gossip column the Red Diamond, so he must be attached to it somehow, other than in the literal way. But I don't think I've ever seen him use it in any way other than as just an accessory. A fabulous accessory, yes, but an accessory nonetheless. Thank you, Connor, for the podcast, and Kieran for all the amazing comics you've written, Secret Invasion, Aftermath, Beta Ray Bill. The Green of Eden still contains one of the best pages I've ever read, and a line I quote often, if there is nothing but what we make in this world, brothers, let us make good. Sincerely, Adam Levine, a literator in the Discord. What are your thoughts on the red diamond, Kieran? That's very kind. Thank you very much for those kind words. Um, yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's more obviously with the uh, Dr. Stasis stuff. Well, clearly like, now there's something to yeah. it. Yeah. Hmm. I, I, you know, it's the sort of thing I don't I want to sort of riff on comedy-wise because I don't want to say anything else in case if I give away too much. Right. But it's a weird one. It is just a... I think we come back to Sinister's performance quite quickly. Yeah. Like, yeah, I've just, people have just got to know what the icon is. It's like, you know, the... um. Actually, you know the bit where Dr. Manhattan in Watchmen goes, if there will be a symbol, there'll be one I trust. Right, he puts the atom on his forehead, yeah. He just thinks, branding, you know, no one else has got one of these. Yeah, it's PR. I mean, the first thing Celine will tell you is you need something. That's why she carries that emotional support skull everywhere, because if you see a brunette with a skull (laughs) in her hand, it's Celine. Yeah. And also, like, he's a shape change. You've got to have the people you got to know it's sinister, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing that's interesting to me is that it really is down to the artist. Like sometimes it does look like it's a painted thing that's just makeup, and other times it is like a jewel. Mm. So it's one of those questions. It's honestly, actually, take it to a place of Maddie for a moment. In Inferno, in the classic Inferno art by Silvestri, who also designed Mr. Sinister, Maddie's brooch is just gold. And then later artists put a big red jewel in the middle of it. And now it depends on the artist. But I think about that jewel all the time. I'm like, is it a bloodstone like Ilyana's? What is it? Like, it could be any number of things. Is it literally just she was at the jewelry store and was like, that would look great on my brooch and bought it? Like, we don't know. For Sinister, it, to me, evokes a certain grandiosity. He's so monochrome otherwise. Like, he's chalk white and he is in this black or navy blue, depending on the coloring, outfit. And then there's this red beacon. It proclaims him. It's like, look, mm. pay attention to me, you know? Yeah, yeah. Just like the pointy teeth he used to have. He used to have those very pointy teeth. He seems to have toned those down. Yeah. And the red eyes, you know, like it's... The, yeah, the it's it, like it's visual. Yeah. It also seems like maybe it's third eye symbolism, which like lots of cultures do that in the forehead. Like it's not a bindi, but it has that kind of quality yeah. to it a little bit where it's like representing yeah. the intellect. I do find it really, let's say the symbolism is there, but I find, I agree, it's fascinating. We've, we've never really done anything with it. Yeah, it's just never been addressed. Yeah, it's like people being too rude to mention it. Yeah, you know, so of, then, what, well, it's like Mystique's forehead skull, which no one has ever mm. explained. And so I think because I just take Mystique's forehead skull for granted, I never thought too much about Mr. Sinister's forehead diamond. But now the Dr. Stasis is a forehead club. You best believe, I'm thinking about like, 
Does this imply the existence of Spade Sinister and Heart Sinister? It certainly does. What are they like? What are these things going on? So there's a lot now that it opens up. I was talking to Rob Secundus from Comics XF, and we were talking about how we call those Morrisonian retcons because it's Weapon Plus is the one we always think of where it's like, Weapon X, great. that was Weapon 10, right? Like, that's great. And when you can do something like that and make it so that a detail that seemed inconsequential is actually just like a tip of the iceberg to a huge thing. Like what Teeny's done with Otherworld, where it's like Avalon's just one of the provinces. Like, that's, you know, there's mm. so much more going on. Similarly, yeah, all the sinisters you've met are from the diamond strain of the sinister whatever is a very funny idea it's also like what Steve's been doing with Eric the Red in Marauders, where it's like, what if there is a bunch of the Reds and you've only met the one, right? Like, that's a fun notion. So I'm excited to see where it goes, but I don't believe it's ever been explained. And it doesn't have a function. Like, he doesn't shoot lasers out of it or anything. It's just there. And it looks great. So <laughs> I can't blame him for leaning into it. I sort of assume that it has something to do with Apocalypse transforming him with celestial technology because that's when he gets it in Further mm. Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. I think it's just sort of like how Warren was blue, like, you know, Exodus had markings on his forehead or whatever. Like, sometimes they just get marked in that way. But I'm interested to see where Jerry takes it and where you take it, Kieran, because it seems like stuff is afoot that is going to be fun. Fun stuff. And uh, one thing, actually, because I'm not going to read his letter, but Zach Jenkins, also of Comic Success and Battle of the Atom, wrote in to point out, because he was also wondering about the diamond, he pointed out that Dr. Wellington Yue in Dune has like a forehead diamond. And we know that Claremont loves to pull symbols and things from work that he was a fan of. So it seems entirely plausible that that might be where that came from. But I don't know, and we'd have to ask Chris... Joshua Bruckner writes, Hello, Connor and Kieran. I'm very excited about this one since Mr. Sinister has rocketed to the top of my favorite characters list since House of X. Making him a campy villain obsessed with himself makes him stand out among the many mad scientist types at Marvel, and I can't resist a character whose driving motivation is to be the fanciest bitch in any room. My question is about the mutant powers he stole. Does Sinister see it as debasing or dirtying himself to be a chimera? Does he harbor some secret wish to be a true mutant or something even better than them? Did he take Thunderbird's powers out of sheer convenience, or did he feel a particular pull towards them? Super strength and other very physical powers don't quite seem like his bag, and I'm not sure he's ever made use of them on past. Are the exact powers less important than the fact he can give himself powers? What mutant powers, if any, do you think he'd rather have? Or is that less important than his own evil genius? Thanks for all you both do and write. Looking forward to this episode and to Sinister's eventual banishment to the pit. And Michael Athgar <laughs> asked a similar question, but asked why Thunderbird and not a Summers DNA splice? Because you'd think that would be something he'd want to do. As for the Thunderbird question, again, you'd have to ask Jonathan Hickman. I think that it was meant to be appalling in a very specific way, which is that, like, Thunderbird is the first great martyr of the X-Men, and for Mr. Sinister to treat him so cavalierly is, like, upsetting. There's also the colonial element of that being, like, this Native American superhero and Sinister just being like, I'll take that, you know? I would agree. I think it's um, it's horrific. Also, it's specifically reminding you, because obviously... It's, it is reminding us of the existence of all, all of that, especially where we end up going with that as well, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, yeah. It, more broadly, I mean, there's a bit about this in Immortal 2, isn't there, when he's talking about... Um, yes. It's because recent Sinister has been less powerful than classic Sinister. Well, because one thing that's interesting is it's not the first time he's stolen an X-Gene, as it were, because mm. in the Nicias Gambit... Because 90s Sinister is a shapeshifter, and that's mm. something that's really been de-emphasized in more recent stuff. The explanation that 
Nisiesa gave is that when Gambit and his ally Courier were traveling back in time, Sinister ran a bunch of experiments on Courier and stole Courier's shapeshifting power. So there is a degree to which we've seen this before. Like there is a history of this. And in that case, it was him specifically choosing a power that he wanted to isolate and take. With Thunderbird, it feels almost like he wants so profoundly to be part of this cool club with the Essex factor that he was like, I didn't just want to take any old X gene. I took one that you all care about, you know? Also signaling this is one you lost. And also, yeah. what, what, what else do I Twist have? Twist the knife. What else do I have that you lost, Charles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, you know what I mean? That's, it's, that's, I think that, for me, I think that's the biggest mm-hmm. in terms of why he would do it. It's because, oh, yeah, he would do it just being, you know, completely messy. Right. He would also, like, this is like, oh, no, I, I have his gene. Yeah. Just saying. As for the Summers question, well, first of all, in X-Men The End, it's established that Gambit is a product of Sinister combining his own DNA with Summer's DNA. Now, that's not necessarily canonical to Earth-616, but it is somewhere Claremont eventually did take the characters in at least one alternate universe. Nicias's plot at the Black Womb Project heavily implies by the end of that Gambit solo volume three that Amanda Mueller and Sinister created Gambit at the Black Womb Project. Gambit was a popular candidate for the third Summer's brother in the 90s. He has red eyes. He has an energy power. If Amanda Mueller's own DNA was used in the creation of him somehow or whatever, she also is heavily implied to be the ancestor of the Summer's line herself. So Sinister's been tracing the Summer's bloodline since... He experimented on Daniel Summers as Daniel Edge in London, and since he married Amanda and her ex-gene into that line while also working with her scientifically. Basically, I think that he's really into Summers' DNA under controlled circumstances, even if that circumstance is I've made a gun that shoots Summers' laser beams or, like, I've made a cat with Summers' powers. Like, I think that that's an X factor, as it were, that he wouldn't want to integrate into the sinister system because it's such a variable yeah i also think in the last pretty much since i took over him he's been less interested in uh, scott per se right it's more like it's more like that's my classic stuff like he has all yeah, of these that... scott things lying around because that's part of the cable project he was working on but that's old news now it's almost like he learned how it was his test studies this is my you know my you know this is how I, my doctorate if you will like all his... Amanda says that she, in the Carrie stuff that she was the first mutant that Sinister ever met. Yeah, I, I think Sinister was lying to her. I think he is absolutely <laughs> lying to her, but let's say... He, he met Apocalypse. Right, right. <laughs> yes, no, I think he's buttering her up, but the point is she was the first mutant for sure that he was able to study under controlled mm. circumstances. And mm. so I think that it just happens to be her bloodline that he has spent now a couple hundred years being able to watch it develop. And so it was a special thing there, but Cable and Nate Gray were the logical endpoint of that experiment, and the experiment has now concluded, essentially. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's like, uh, I, I had that bloodline thing in the first issue of Sinister I ever wrote in the last last issue of the first Uncanny volume. Yeah. there's a the, 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 And here's it, it feels like, this is my first research, and now I'm moving on to other stuff. So it's a bit like, it'd be still important, it's still his founding text. He tried to perfect a mutant bloodline, and now he has gathered that knowledge and is using it in the pursuit of perfecting himself, but I don't think he yeah. sees a need to put Scott's genes in himself, necessarily. I mean, one of the things I think Sinister understands and Apocalypse doesn't about is the concept of survival of the fittest. It's not survival of the best, it's survival of the best fit. Yes. So in other words, 
any mutant gift is about the context it's in. So I think like that's a bit of like how I conceive of him taking stuff he likes. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of like you know yeah I could. It's not necessarily about Omega level. It's about yeah, yeah. fitting the need, and that's why when you look at the chimeras, the sinister chimeras and powers of ten. Some of those choices are odd. It's like, really, was he thinking that much about Unus the Untouchable? But like, if you need a force field, why not? Right? Yeah, it's definitely. I, that's some of my favorite stuff with Sinister. Just realizing that, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of that in issues to come. Like, just random, like especially in issue two when people have been reading that. They're that weird thing he makes to fight a Kokoa. You know, and that's like, what on earth did he put in that? You know, and uh, I don't possibly ex- explain it. But there's a lot of that with him. You know, <laughs> yeah. Brian Houston writes, Hello, Connor, an esteemed British guest. First, to Kieran, I know we're trying to keep questions focused on your Xbooks, but I have to thank you for phonogram and making my American Midwestern self aware of the long blondes. So thanks, they're wonderful. Second, to Connor, I've been a longtime listener and somewhat frequent question asker, but only recently started using the Discord server. You and the mods have done a great job cultivating a nice environment there, even if many of the users make me feel older than Celine. Now, <laughs> on to my question. What happened with the thing where Sinister was secretly Val Cooper's ex-husband? <laughs> I realized it was probably just Sinister posing as her ex, but it'd be very funny to me if he actually married her because he just really enjoyed cosplaying as a polygraph expert and lying about the results to people. Yes, I was the person who asked about this in your Val Cooper episode. I just wanted to hear Kieran's answer. Brian T.D. Mollusk on Discord. What are your thoughts, Kieran? I think that the only way to explain that is to say he was just posing as him that one time and wasn't always him. But it is funny to think about Mr. Sinister and Val Cooper's like ongoing marriage. I do like the every man has to have a hobby, I guess. Like, right? I'm, I'm like, not doing big experiments. Okay, I'm just going to go and be Val Cooper's husband. Well, and I mean, she's at Project Wide Awake and all that. It would be a useful person to keep tabs on. I mean, Mystique did keep up her marriage to Senator Brickman for years just to gather intel. It's not out of the question. She's perfectionist and brilliant. I think Sinister's is a bit more flight. Leaving aside the fact that I do think it would be perhaps baggage we don't need to give the character to say Sinister lived as an African-American man for a long period of time because <laughs> no. Val Cooper's ex-husband is black. So let's not, let's not go there. But also I think that, uh, yeah, I think it's just too labor intensive. Like he wouldn't want to do, yeah. can you imagine him like having breakfast with Val Cooper and like listening to her talk about her problems at work? I can't. So I don't know that he could have done it long-term. So I think he just replaced him for that one story he must have because like if you were married to sinister you would divorce him well right when she did notably he's right yeah, yeah, oh, no, yeah that's that's actually true right? but uh, my <laughs> <laughs> you, you, he just kept on doing genetics in the basement <laughs> yeah i mean you know and she's just like enough already no but you know i think that he just replaced edmund in that story and that he was not always uh, her husband that's my final i think answer. that would make more sense but I would read an X-Men Legends story about, like, the week in which he was posing as him and had to pretend that he knew all these details about his marriage to Val. And she's like, well, you know how my mother is. And he's like, yeah, mm. you hate her, love her, what, remind me? Because uh, I think that would be fun. Tim Matum writes, hi, Connor and Kieran. Connor, I'm British, so feel free to go wild with the accent. Congratulations on hitting season three. The show's a constant delight and has helped me appreciate a bunch of ex-characters in new and exciting ways. Keep up the fantastic work. A couple of questions about our favorite Victorian gent. Sinister's powers have been all over the place since his inception, but since your reinvention of the character, Kieran, the focus seems to be pretty firmly on his cloning capabilities and genetic genius. When writing him, is it easy to streamline his capabilities to those areas? And do you think explicitly scaling back his superpowers was wise or would be wise? 
Secondly, how do both of you think the nasty boys feel about Krakoa era sinister and his place on the Quiet Council? We know that Slab and Ruckus have done work for Sword, and Gorgeous George has been sighted at the Green Lagoon. Does Sinister care one jot about his former muscle lads? Thanks, Tim Matum. I immediately go like, uh, it's like the Supremes uh, missing Diana Ross. You know, like, um, like I don't think Diana Ross thinks about them at all. No. You know, so like, and Sinister doesn't think about anyone at all. So like, I don't think he would have any any care. I think he forgot about the Nasty Boys the second that they failed in that one mission. I mean, here's the thing. This is another thing about the cartoon. Because in the cartoon, Sinister used the Nasty Boys always and didn't use the Marauders, except for Vertigo, who randomly is one of the Nasty Boys in the cartoon. It's kind of like, we have this idea that they were a big deal, but they actually were barely ever used. It was more that the Marauders had been killed off in Claremont, and the idea that he clones them back a million times is something that Chris did provide in that story, but I think that other writers were hesitant to explain it every time, so I think that Peter David just introduced this new set of bad guys for the X-Factor story, and then nobody else ever really used them. Which is a shame because Ruckus's beautiful Larry Stroman hair, much like Polaris's, <laughs> is just gorgeous. But honestly, like Mr. Sinister and the Nasty Boys, it's like, how could people say there was no camp aspect to him? Right! It's Nathan, Mr. Sinister, if you're nasty. It's the Janet Jackson <laughs> reference, right? Also, the, I do wonder, though, so the upstarts in Claremont's original outline for that story were called the Wild Boys. As a reference to the William S. Burroughs novel about the revolutionary gay guys. And Shinobi Shaw is Mm. a queer character. So where was that going? Unclear. He didn't end up calling them the Wild Boys. That also, back then, in the outline, Zaladane was among their number. Just saying. Santa Blaze replaces her in the lineup of the upstarts. I wonder if maybe it was like a reuse of that, but also like that Janet Jackson song was big. And the idea of Mr. Sinister naming his new minions after a Janet Jackson lyric is very, very funny to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty good. This is about control. Sinister's control. Oh, the power question. The power question. Do you think that it's been consciously ratcheted back? Is that something you feel like it's a good thing to do? I think it's like, especially in the noise, there was the the power the, the big power selection like everyone just everyone had this this blob of power sets it's like they were selling it on mass and sort of it, it is an element of genericism to it and for me characters are the most interesting when you know what they are doing so even if you've got like i mean another question had said this sinister is different to other geneticists because how he does it mm-hmm. and that's for me is the, the, the point of it as in you you know i imagine just a guy who makes suits it's a guy who makes certain kind of suits so right. you've got to have a style you can't just like in the same way i try to make all telepaths different yeah you need a like, signature yeah, yeah, well, you know, like, you know, the psychic knives are just a great thing. Yeah. you know, you've got, you've got a, and I'm doing Exodus, and sorry, the Exodus issue when that comes up, there's definitely stuff about okay, this is how Exodus sees psychic powers. Right. This is how his telekinesis and telepathy work, as opposed to Jean or Emma or Charles or Betsy or Monet or whoever. Yeah, and you know that stuff's always been there. When you look at like the Shadow King Xavier, do you know when they first met? Mm-hmm. It's very explicitly they are using their psychic powers different ways in the psychic mindscape, and Xavier like does it a, a much a, a clinical scalpel type approach and that kind of stuff i think is just great and that is the same for all powers like super strength even super strength should feel different it should be applied in different ways by different characters yeah, yeah. so for sinister like narrowing his stuff down to i like using other mutant powers and using that mutant power in context is 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 a better way of doing it you mm-hmm. know like um this is this is what i'm bringing for this mission and i'll do it in this way and it's funner yeah but at the same time like uh, literally in immortal 2 i've got a line where he says 
he just mentions yeah, it'll be shame to remind people what I used to be I used to do to myself. Right, because he shapeshifts himself into a big thing by injecting himself with stuff. The implication is I used to do this all the time with like the courier yeah. factor or whatever it was, but yeah. you know, I don't do it as much anymore because it's stressful or something. Also, I used to be nearly invulnerable. Yeah. You know, and this kind of I've in other words, the implication is I've specifically chosen to be in a weaker body. I've chosen to not be invulnerable anymore because that's pushing me toward perfection in some other way or whatever. You yeah. know? Also like, I think it's uh, I'm not, I'm, I think I'm this I think I implied this strongly in there, but also it makes people underestimate him. Mm, yeah. Like being a, a less Apocalypse is scary in the room. Sinister is less scary, and that's a power. Mm-hmm. You know, well, that's part of the performance too, is to make people yeah, yeah, underestimate yeah. him, right? Like the way that he jokes around and whatnot is in part so that he can disarm the people around yeah, yeah. him. I mean, there's that bit in the second episode when he's like, he, he just a moment of sincerity to Nightcrawler, mm-hmm. and then like Nightcrawler, oh, he, you know, Nightcrawler's a nice guy. He'll buy it for a second, and, and then oh, fucking idiot! That's fucking Mister Sinister. <laughs> never mind. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that, for me, is like, that's at least part of my thinking. I said, yeah, he's done it, but right now his tactic is to be weaker. Mm-hmm. So like in, that's me being in-universe, but also out of universe. I think it's more interesting to grab powers and use it as required. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. Andrew Kosick writes, Dear Connor and esteemed guest, I have a question about Sinister and his animal selves. When Sinister was stealing the Celestial's head, his kingdom involved Sinister horses and cows and such made from his <laughs> DNA. The fact that Sinister made Sinister animals leads to a couple practical questions. One, Kieran, did those animals have Sinister's thoughts and sentience, or were they just regular animals with diamonds on their forehead that occasionally had disturbing thoughts about the Summers family? Two, are there other animals made by or out of Sinister's? Is one of Gambit's cats a spy? Was Emma really saving Firestar from horrible experiments when she killed butter rum and genetically modified pony could 100% kidnap a child and sinister does have a disturbing fixation on redheads with fiery powers maybe under some certain circumstances cocaine fueled horse murder is actually somehow a mitzvah thanks andrew kosick ak0 on the discord what are your thoughts on the sinister animals because it is one of the funnier innovations <laughs> i would say yes to all of this yeah i think all of these <laughs> things should be true I think it's like I don't think they walk around sadly thinking because that, that's a bit that's too dark I think a little bit also we don't need to be dwelling on like the philosophical ontological questions of the sinister horse but like, specifically on sinister for like the whole kind of underground sinister stuff we did in the first uh, my volume two there was the implication that all the sinisters could step up to the top position they required. So it's like, right. it was like, oh, oh yeah, this is the sinister, I mean, the sinister cow's my favourite. Which they go move and all explode because they've got gambit abilities or whatever. <laughs> it's sort of like a tontine. Like, Mike Carries is like that also. Amanda Mueller tries to kill all of the Cronus Project subjects because the fewer potential hosts of Sinister's power there are, the more powerful it becomes, right? Like, that yeah. is sort of the implication there, too. Yeah. So, and also, like, the lead character of that is the, the rebel Sinister, who's who, mm-hmm. who's rebelling, but his being a rebel is part of the system. Right. Controlled opposition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So all, yes, the cows are part, they're all Sinisters, but their job is to be cows, so they're going to have cow thoughts. <laughs> but, like, then if the system, you know, but then if this was reduced to just one cow, the cow would probably become Sinister again. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's what I, you know, the idea of the making the system and replicating out to form the system again. That was how I conceived it. But of course, it's like he's got other ideas. And like, you know, obviously, introduced the tortoise and the um, cat. Right. You know, so yeah, I think that he, he just can't stop himself. <laughs> he's that level of narcissist. It's like, yes, horses are fine, but a horse was also me. That would be superior in every way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. 
Kate Micah Battles asks sort of the ship of Theseus question that we had danced around a little. Greetings, Connor and honored guest Kieran, big fan of the podcast and all of Mr. Gillen's comic book work. With all of Mr. Sinister's self-experimentation and change and rewriting of his own mind, do you think he's the same guy he started out as? Of course, he's still technically the scientist that lost his son and wife and became obsessed with evolution. But how much of the non-experimented upon Nathaniel Essex remains, if any? In Immortal X-Men, he mentions he removed his racism and he's edited himself numerous times and also copied himself. Like, is the Sinister we have now, even the sinister we knew from yesterday, he doesn't seem sentimental, but would he keep a copy of his original brain for some weird science reason? Any response is appreciated. Have a wonderful life. Kate Battles. P.S. Truly happy to see Kieran joining the X office during this already awesome time of collaboration and storytelling. The thing about Sinister, I'm not sure if I've actually said this before, but at least part of my coming in was to make him creepier again. Like, yeah, yes, he's going to be just as fun in the same way as before, but I'm going to turn up the horror element. And if you could describe the horror of Sinister, it's that. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's Sinister's horror, as in how much is him left? It's the Sasha Vikos from Vampire the Masquerade thing, or like Darth Vader's another one, where it's like, if you start replacing all the pieces of yourself, how much mm. of you is left, right? Yeah. And especially because literally his origin story is like, I don't want to feel some things anymore. Right. I you literally I mean? want to cut out my emotions. Yeah, yeah. And that's the horror. That is in some way the horror of Sinister. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's the question. And he meant to dwell as in how much of yourself could you lose before you realize you're not the same person? And especially for somebody who's born of narcissism. Yes. That's a, that, that's the, that's Because if you're always isn't. sinister, then sinister can be anything, right? Like that's, yeah, yeah. The, you know. In which case, why are you trying to save yourself? You know, that's the, the irony. You know, sinister thinks he's the best thing in the universe, but he's got no solid self. Right. You know, like that's the. Like that's what the is sinister? It's everything and nothing. It's whatever sinister wants to be. But that is, by definition, to him, the best thing. So it's a very... Yeah, yeah. The, the awful tautological philosophical horror of him. Well, and that's also the big parallel between him and Moira as she is now. Mm. The solipsism of forever is where I live. Yeah. The two of them as parallel figures are now very, very interesting to me. Hunter Scribner writes, Dear Connor and the esteemed Mr. Kieran Gillen, I've been a listener of the pod since the beginning, but this is my first time writing in. So first off, I'd like to thank Connor for creating an invaluable resource for someone like me, a clueless flat scan who only started reading the X-Men with Hawksbox in 2019. I'd also like to thank Mr. Gillen for gifting the world both with The Wicked and the Divine with Jamie McKelvey and Die with Stephanie Hans, two truly genius works of art. My question, hopefully not too late. Nope, you got it in just in time. Has to do with Mr. Sinister's relationship to the concept of camp, specifically as articulated by the post-structuralist theorist Susan Sontag. Sontag makes a distinction between pure or naive camp and deliberate or conscious camp, which she claims is less satisfying. Kind of like Tom Hooper's Cats as pure naive camp versus the Rocky Horror Picture Show as deliberate or conscious camp, for example. So I guess the question is this, is Mr. Sinister engaging in a naive or deliberate form of camp? It seems undeniable that in the last however many years it's been, Sinister has become a high camp personality, but I find myself unable to decide or tell if he's aware of his own performance of camp. In some instances, he seems hyper-aware of his own performativity, but in others, he seems blissfully ignorant of his hyperbolic expression. Do different Sinister clones have distinct relationships with the aesthetic, or is it less Maddie Pryor and more Jamie Madrox, where every Sinister clone is kind of part of the ultimate gestalt of Mr. Sinister? I apologize for the overly long and perhaps far too niche question, and thank you again, Connor, for creating such a wonderful podcast. I hope to someday soon find the courage and the free time to participate in the Discord. Respectfully drinking Dr. Pepper from my candy Southern Cerebro mug, Hunter Scribner. Love that you put candy on a mug. Also love this question and you should join the Discord. It is a fun little casual place. It's very low key. We don't let any bad vibes in if we can help it. 
So this is a great question. It is a really good question. I know, right? I think yeah. that it depends on the writer is part of it, right? Mm. What I took away from Immortal X-Men number one is that Sinister is very aware of his performance, but isn't as self-aware as he believes himself to be. Because his inner monologue has naive camp in it, whereas his outward presentation is deliberate camp. So I think it's kind of a combo of the two, and that's what makes him funny, is that he's not as in on the joke as he thinks he is. I think that's. I think uh, you've said. It. I don't need to answer now. I think that's it. The only di- like the only thing I would add to that is like, of course, he's also speaking to the reader, so he's also performing to the reader. So the writer is doing it deliberately. Like he's also not real. So there's a layer yeah, of yeah, ontology yeah, yeah. there. But it's like it's definitely he's not he's not as naive camp as say Namor is. Right. Namor doesn't know he's doing it. Yeah, yeah. Namor doesn't care. He's like <laughs> that, that's why that, that's why Namor was a joy. I said, you know, yes. Well, or like, here's here's yeah. a good Celine is yes. naive camp. She has yes. no idea she's doing it. It just is who she is. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Sinister is definitely putting on a show. Yeah, yeah I would agree with that. But just, I'm not sure. I mean, I haven't read enough Sontang to like know for sure. That's fine. But I think that's I think that's a good answer. I think we. I think, yeah, yeah. It's almost like I'm not sure I'd agree with the division between which one is better. Well, right. Well, that's her value judgment. I don't yeah, think yeah, it's yeah. necessarily true. I'm not saying I like Rocky Horror in that way. But no, like... no, no. I well, I like Rocky Horror for what it is. Yeah. But for example, I think Little Shop of Horrors, which is Deliberate Camp, the musical, is mm. sensational work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very funny. So it really does depend on what you're doing with it and what you're choosing to do. And also, the concept has evolved so much since Sontag articulated it in that essay, mm. in terms of her framework of it. And, you know, she's been dead for a while. So it's like, I'm sure that, much like Butler's <laughs> thoughts on gender have been revisited. Like I, as someone who studied a lot of this stuff in, in college and whatnot, and grad school, my God, I have a lot of problems with Butler's gender trouble. But the thing is, so does Judith Butler. So like, mm. when the scholar is still alive, they will revisit things. And Sontag, unfortunately, can't revisit that essay because she died yeah. too young. The value judgment aspect of that, I think, is is a more complicated question. But I do agree that the division is important. The winking, I'm doing camp like John Waters versus the campiness of a Roger Corman movie that's not trying to do it. And that just does yeah, it yeah. by virtue of what it is and how it operates. Yeah, I would agree with that entirely. It's, just, it's a very real division. Yeah, and I think that Sinister straddles it in a way that is interesting. And that's part of what's fun. Even Celine, actually, who I think is much more on the naive camp end of the spectrum. She does theme herself and carry a skull around and do something. Like, in part, she just does that because it's what she wants to do. But she's also very aware of being the Black Priestess, putting on a performance a little bit. But mostly that's just like, that is her personality. Whereas with Essex, it's a personality he's cultivated. So it's complicated. And edit, I think my favorite, this is a very much, the more you read of Sinister, the more like, his personality has changed. I mean, people say they're out of character, but Sinister is explicitly in canon, even before I got hold of him. He's editing himself. Like there's a bit that, I mentioned this before we started, but there's a bit where in the Gambit mini, mm-hmm. Gambit talks about how uh, more suave Sinister was circa 1900. Right, yeah. It's like Milbury is a really smooth operator. And it's like, that's yeah. not sort of what Sinister's like now. It's like, yeah, because he's altered his brain like 50 times <laughs> since you last saw him. Uh, Spencer Graham writes, Kieran, did you set the prologue of Immortal X-Men number one in Paris in 1919 because of the song or did you choose the song after? What was your thought process behind choosing songs for that soundtrack playlist? That playlist is great, by the way. I will link it in the description here if people haven't heard it. Is Paris 1919 the overall theme song for Immortal X-Men? I think it's, I wouldn't say it's the overall theme song, but it's certainly the overture. And I tell you, my method is weird. Well, and like the lyric is quoted throughout, like the You're a Ghost lyric, which recurs again yeah. in two. 
it's like occasionally, like I, I think when I talk about my my work, I quite often sound very analytical. You know, I talk about looking into a thing and solving problems, and then stepping inside the work and trying to analyze and take things seriously. And that's one of my main things. But occasionally, it's just visionary, and I mean that not in a kind of like. Uh, not in the Grant Morrison uh, proper way. What I mean is just occasionally it's like, that. that's what I want to do. And like, I got obsessed by Paris 1919. Uh, in fact, I hadn't really listened to it ever before. Around the same time I was work, starting to work on Immortal. Mm-hmm. And I suddenly had the, the the image of the Beaujolais reigning and all, the, all yeah. that other stuff. And I got the image of Sinister and Irene, sorry, Nathaniel and Irene sitting in the park discussing at the beginning as a mirror to the, you know, Hox, the Hoxpox scene. It was just the vision. Yeah, and the thing is, like, John Cale as a lyricist is so cryptic that mm. it has the appeal of, like, P.J. Harvey, Kate Bush, Patti Smith, like, I'm, like, the poets who write Lou Reed, that kind of stuff, where you're like, what does that mean? It tends to inspire a lot of work because if the lyrics are opaque like that, they mean different things to different listeners. Mm. When I'm doing creative stuff, I always make, like, a playlist of stuff like that. I thought it was a nice detail because like Kale didn't pick the time and place for no reason, presumably, right? Like the fact of the Paris Peace Conference and all of that stuff, it's important to the song, even if it's not clear why in the lyrics of the song. And I think that similarly, is the song important to the issue? I don't know, but I put on the playlist when I was reading Immortal One and I love The Knife. I love Karen Dreyer and Olaf Dreyer. And I loved Tomorrow in a Year, which is not something that a lot of people were crazy about, I guess, when it dropped. Like, cause it's, it's weird and it wasn't like what people were expecting from them. But I love that song, Coloring of Pigeons, which is about Darwin, of course. Like the whole, it's a, it's a concept album about Darwin. It's an opera. I got to the huge operatic soprano, like, right when I turned the page to Moira in the tubes. (laughs) And it was so good. It was like one of the most synchronous music. The best one that I've had besides that with like Krakoa era X and stuff is when I was reading Ten of Swords Creation, I put on Hounds of Love and right when Saturnine shattered the telepathic vision, Under Ice picked up with like the dun, dun. Done. It was great. That's great. I think that there's something to your work that as much as you are, as much as you are like kind of a formalist and someone who thinks about structure, there is an intuitive kind of like spiritual center to it. That's an intuitive thing. That's very like Grant Morrison, yeah. honestly, right? Or Alan Moore, like we're just going to go with it because the spirit moves through me as I'm writing or whatever. And the music always seems to me to be that. It's like the the evocation of music is so important in terms of like, it just gets me thinking. And a lot of that playlist is just, this is how I want a mortal X-Men to feel. Mm-hmm. Like some of the stuff is explicitly me referring to stuff I want to do. But other stuff is just like, I mean... But it can also just be a vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially, I think the colouring of pigeons is, okay, intellectually it's perfect. Obviously, it's about the 19th century, but it also sounds like fucking space age music. So it's it's Krakoa. Yeah. You know, this is this is literally mashing Darwin with, uh, you know, right. Sinister and like, yeah. So it, but it's also just the sound of it, you know? It's yeah, yeah, so yeah. bombastic. It feels like the moment, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of the playlists like that. And just some of it's like, there's a lot of music I imagine people listen to in the 1980s at dinner parties, which I obviously was far too young to go to. Mm-hmm. So it's like sad, it's like sad uh, 80s music. And there's a lot of like, there's just a lot of that going on. Well, I always associate 80s music with the X-Men because I associate mm. the 80s with Claremont with the core of the X-Men, right? Like to me, that is the essential iconic period of the X-Men is like, 
1980 to 1989. So like that's yeah. where my musical brain tends to go. I can see that, yeah. You know, I mean, it's definitely it's a mixture. Some songs, as you say, they're like I think some some sort of inspire me to make mm-hmm. me feel stuff, which I am now trying to replicate. Even though the song may not do it to the listener, it will do it to me. Another stuff is like, literally I want to shoot for that, like um. Like something like Utopia. Or yeah, like, like that was a very odd. Uh, th- that also is actually like reading that first issue, Paris 1919 into Utopia into Coloring of Fidgets is really great for that first issue because Paris 1919 is playing while we're in Paris in 1919. And then you turn the page into Krakoa in the present and it's Utopia. And then as you get to Celine's making her case, Coloring of Fidgets is building and then you turn the page on the big opera moment and moira and all of the moiras are in the tubes (laughs) which is a real that was really funny to me because people were like there was all this after x desk people were like oh like they've taken that power completely off the board that's disappointing and then like two weeks later it was like oh honey you have no idea how on the board that power is it was so like honestly like coming into the office as developed as it is because i've been a reader obviously all the time yeah but it but i and i come in as like if I was a supervillain, this is what I would do. Right. And there's a bit, you know what I mean? Like, there is that that there is that fun of it. And all these toys, and, and I've uh, come in to say, okay, these are some interesting angles. Let's play. And that's the joy of, like, such a fruitful office, because the ideas are so free-flowing and building. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to see where people see what we do next. Matthew Marquez writes, Hey, Connor, and esteemed guest, Kieran. Connor, thank you so much for the weekly content. It's so nice and informative and definitely reignited my love of X-Men. Well, thank you. Kieran, I absolutely cared 0% about Nathaniel Essex before your querying of the character, and he now ranks as one of my favorite villains of all time. With your love of mixing music and with your comics writing, I was wondering which musical genres or fads over the many, many years do you think Sinister has been a fan of, which he's not, and maybe, just maybe, is there some he had a hand in manipulating the destruction of? Thank you so much for your content. I'm looking forward to all the great discussions of our technically a mutant. Mr. Sinister, Marquez, Marquez, the GM on Discord. I'm doing like, that, that's hilarious. The idea of Sinister got into like music collecting rather than gene collecting. What's Sinister's vinyl collection like? I've got no image of being very into like the bastard pop mashup stuff, circa 2000. Mm, I could you know, see like, that. Yeah, you, like, like I, I will, I will take, uh, you know, Girls Aloud. <laughs> that's literally what he does though. He I does. Guess. He makes chimeras. <laughs> he makes mashup songs, but they're people. Yeah. Weirdly, annoyingly, my brain has actually got to character mode rather than Joe Cancer because character. Like, no, for most of the, the century, he didn't really care about music. You know what I mean? He he was no fun for a lot of the yeah, no. twentieth century. Beginning of the twentieth nineteenth century, be more. He'd be very into like when jazz arrived or the blues sure. arrived. This is interesting. Yeah, because it's always like. Well, it's improvisation is what's interesting to him, right? It's like improvising within a framework. That's what he kind of yeah, does yeah. It's like oh, this this is interesting. This is new. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And um, actually, I meant, meant for. I want to the last question. Of course, Utopia is like um, Grant Morrison's theme tune for Marvel Boy. Right. So it's like me having Utopia on the album, uh, on the list is me giving a nod to Morrison uh, on the choir. Sorry, I wanted to mention that in passing. Yeah. Yeah. That's the gold trap song, Utopia, by the way, for people who are not Yeah, familiar. yeah, sorry. Here's the thing, and here's a good moment for like the naive versus deliberate camp. Like, I can't see Sinister being into disco. He's not that yeah. kind of gay. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think modern Sinister might be more okay with it, but certainly... Close to the period, no. Yeah, but I, yeah. but I could see him being into like one synth pop came in. You know what I mean? Like it depends on. I just feel like he wants something a little colder and more impersonal. I don't think he likes to be in a nightclub. You know what I mean? He's not that social a guy. Yeah. Oh god, I see him into in like in the seventies. I can imagine being the really kind of not the good prog rock. Right. No. Know, exactly. Yeah, no, like, yeah. 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 That's because I don't fix Sinister's good music taste. Well, that's, that's the, the thing. thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
One of my least favorite things writers do is give uh, give characters better music taste than they should than have. They should have. You know what I mean? Like, because I don't think Scott has a good record collection, and that's no. Great. My favorite thing is that canonically, uh, Scott and Jean's first dance at their wedding is "One" by U2, which is perfect. Great, yes, very much perfect. It's like this is a really bad choice for a wedding song. <laughs> it is, however, exactly the wedding song that Jean Grey would choose in 1995 or whatever. You know, uh, bless him. Eric Tarnowski writes, "Greetings, Connor, and Mr. Gillen." What video game was Sinister playing and not doing so hot on when he was inspired to make Save State Moira clones? <laughs> is he a Dark Souls lad? Is he more of a Mega Man-style platformers guy? Or was it something simple, like he just didn't catch the Pokemon he wanted? With these DNA backups, we do know he likes to catch them all. Thanks for your time and the amazing pod. Looking forward to hearing your exciting plans for Season 3 and beyond, Eric. I don't know if that's an actual like question we can answer, but more to the point of like your inspiration. The first thing I said was, oh my God, he's save scumming. Like, is that what you were thinking of when you came up with his Moira scheme? Yes, is probably the best answer. Because actually I had a, I had a ca- idea for a character years ago, literally when I was in the first in the X office, who had that as a mutant power. They can make one save they once Like they make, make a save, save point. point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, I never did anything with that. I'm not sure why. I just had other things on, and so that that I think that was in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. So doing that on a much more metaphysical level with sinister struck me as fun. Yeah, but yeah, I must. I had the idea. I'm I mean, I'm an ex games critic, so I'm sure right. I was subconsciously thinking about save points when I had the idea. But in reality, it was just me just using engineering it in the same way I would do any other mutant powers. In that, okay, if I had this, how could I abuse it? And then, of course, how would you explain it? I'll explain it, like, because it's safe skimming. That's what it is. Yeah, in terms of what Sinister would actually play, though, I think that his whole life is just The Sims. So I don't think he really games. I think the world is his game. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. As in, like, you know, because game theory, of course, is the science. Right, it's like it predates video games, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, he would have a... Yeah, in fact, just any video game, he would uh, even if it didn't have a save, he would hack it. Yeah, well, that's the thing is he'd be game sharking it, and like The yeah, Sims, yeah. he'd be modding The Sims. He wouldn't be playing the vanilla game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. First thing, hacking increases stats. Yeah, get exactly. All the Pokemon he wants rosebud code or whatever. I'm gonna, I want all the furniture yeah. I want. You know. Yes, exactly that. Julia Blunk writes, Hi, Connor, it's me again. I'm so sorry to be the pin in the ass that always sends emails, but I absolutely love Mr. Gillen and all his works. That is a Brazilian love, so please understand that it means I like it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Karen, since you've described this new book as being political, comparing it to Veep and the West Wing, just as a point of curiosity, are there any real-life figures you've used as something of a guide for how Sinister behaves as a member of the Quiet Council? I can see the parallels with Operation Paperclip, of course, but that's a more general situation. Are there any political figures, modern or other Otherwise, you researched and thought, yes, I can see Sinister behaving like this, or this sort of political maneuver is something Sinister would do. Obviously, the X-Men present very unique situations that nobody would ever face in real-life politics, but it's always nice to learn where an author with such interesting takes on characters draws from, or doesn't, as choosing to go for a totally fictional route is also interesting as a choice of what to do with the character and the politics of the world. I hope that made sense, and I just want to say again how much I really appreciate both this podcast and Mr. Gillen's incredible, joyful work. Thank you very much, Julia Blunk. P.S. My partner is British and said, when will they put Mr. Sinister as a panelists on have i got news for you which made me laugh what (laughs) (laughs) what are your thoughts on that well they should definitely have them on a panelist that would be fun right for any most of the characters in some kind of like that kind of panel based show would just be just be good like never mind the buzzcocks with a couple x-men characters would be a fun episode for sure the lineup being which one is dazzler well yeah right (laughs) uh in reality, is it the answer is no. I uh, I say Operation Paperclip is very much there. Mm-hmm. With the politics of the groom, I'm really starting on 
the people of the room. So that was the kind of the first thing I did was okay, where is everyone? What do they want? How would they do it? So like I'm not I'm not really looking at real world models as much as I perhaps there's definitely books where I am real world modelling, but less so here. And a lot of it's much more okay, what are the problems they're gonna face? So in other words, I think I'm I mean some of my favourite stuff in um, in what John did was stuff like, you know, the the going to the diplomat seat. Right. That issue's so fucking good, God. So good. Crowman internal politics, great. But I'm also interested in the intersection between them and the outside world. Mm-hmm. And then that, okay, how, I mean, it's not going to be a trade policy issue. Right. But, you know, that kind of stuff. So, like, what I'm interested in, okay, here's a problem. Okay, here's, I'm going to fictionalize one. Cocoan supply of oranges. Sure. And then I'll go, okay, what's everyone's take? So what does Mr. Sinister feel about oranges? What does Xavier feel about oranges? And then it's like, okay, what are they willing to do to actually get their position across? So that's, I go really first principles, and that's why I'm interested, I guess. And especially because, I mean, broadly, there's different people in the room who want different things. And that's the other area, like, there's the, there's the very theological... And that, that still comes from character, though. Like, the sort of the theocratic aspect of Exodus mm-hmm. is very different from the Catholicism of Kirk. Kirk is much more of a humanist character. Right, or from Emma's very atheistic capitalist perspective. Mm. Like, But Emma's perspective on capitalism is very different from Shaw's. Like, there's lots of different things at the table. That's what I must admit, when I wrote the Shaw episode, it was like, he's a character... Oh, we, he really clicked with, and I tell you, the best thing about writing the issues the way I'm doing it, as in tight character. Like each character point. has their own, yeah, narration. Yeah, point. It forces me to take them very seriously. And there's no way, as in, like I've got to write them now, and I, I can't just use them as somebody like from the outside. What you know, what Shaw really fucking feeling at this moment, right? And that's re- as, as I write, I, I, I love obviously Shaw's a monster, but like he's great to you know really write him. I'm somebody who watches politics, so I'm own kind of takes up on that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I often like explain stuff in the room in the metaphor of, oh, this is like foreign aid. Right. You know, that kind of, that's, that's what I end up talking about. Like policies, board games. That's, you know, uh, the nature of a board game. And that probably is, with the, the save scumming, is probably the, the second time I've mentioned games in terms mm-hmm. of Immortal. I say, like, how do people play a board game? Because, you, know, you know, voting is a fundamental board game mechanism. So that modeling is a board game mechanism. So my. my being that kind of Machiavellian nerd, like I think a lot of that goes into it. Okay, if someone wants to pass this, how could they? What? How could they play the room? And how will they bite them in their ass? Because that's fun. Gary from Dublin writes, Hi, Connor and esteemed Kieran. Gary from Ireland here. Happy guy Dublin on the Discord and Twitter. The Irish accent is getting better, Connor, but it's still a crapshoot if you want to roll those dice again. I'm going to avoid it because it's really <laughs> bad. I remember in his original run that Kieran said the other X-Writers looked at him funny when he kept referring to Emma as the White Queen as opposed to by her first name. I'm wondering, does Kieran still do that? And if so, what does he think it means? Lots of love to you both. You know I love the pod and community and Wikdiv forever. Gary. In part, you said it was just that you forgot her name for a second because you're a bit of a scatterbrain. But do you think there's something to you calling her that instinctively? No, it's just that I couldn't find a real name. Love that. I, I, I love when you admit that it's literally just... Your brain wasn't working. Like when I used to live in the student accommodation, I used to have to basically go the list everyone's name in the house until I hit the right name. Literally, I'm very phenomenally bad with names. When I used to work with Jamie McKelvey, Jamie's not doesn't like socialising. Like he likes being a bit more standoffish, but he's good at names and faces. I'm bad at faces and names. <laughs> so Jamie, literally, like, I'm Jabba the Hutt, and he's like Salacious Crumb, whispering. Having hung out with the two of you, that makes a lot of he is. I do like. I am a huge fan, but I do sometimes worry about like going up like, let me chat with this because you're right. He's a little bit more reserved, mm. whereas like, you know, you're not especially reserved. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, he's got he's enigmatic. And, and, he's uh, mysterious. Enigmatic and yeah, I'm just sort of yeah. like, ooh, he's mysterious. 
And I'm a goof. Yeah, well, so. <laughs> you know, but that's there's an appeal to that too. I'm not especially mysterious, so you know what are you gonna do? <laughs> yeah. I will then ask you a question of mine that occurred to me while we were talking. You got to choose a Quiet Council member for this book. What made you pick Hope? Obviously, you've written her before. You wrote her in Generation Hope. Your take on the character is probably the one I like the best. I've often been not sure how I feel about that character, but I like the way you write her. What made you want to revisit her, and what made you want to put her on the council? Thank you. Everything stuff you said earlier, like she's near, you know, uh, someone, someone younger. Also, I mean, this comes to the politics in that kind of, the five need a stake in the government. Yeah. I also felt that Hope had been, you know, she's prickly and she's been a bit like helpful. <laughs> Time I, for I her to be more <laughs> difficult, right? Yeah. Yeah. In some ways, she's literally the same as Celine. You know, like she's... They're similar in certain respects. There's not much of a difference there. Well, and they're both worship. The difference there is that like Exodus's worship of Hope makes Hope uncomfortable. Whereas Celine is like, love that for me. Worship me more. Yeah, and there's a good compare and contrast though, isn't mm-hmm. there? Because like Hope, I mean, how much is Hope getting into it? I mean, Hope's saying, you know, because she's saying, saying yeah, oh no, I'm not. But a little bit. I mean, the fact that like <laughs> her purpose as the Messiah has now been revealed because it is the Five. That is what she can do. She's conquered death for them, which is what Jesus is like. That's the Messiah's thing, right? Is like conquering death. So uh, the idea that she's protesting a little too much maybe is also interesting to me. Yeah. I find it because that's, you know what I mean? That's flawed and human and yeah. interesting. I said, I just felt like, you know, definitely the, the means of production that, that literally is what they are. <laughs> when they rebelled about Maddie and the other clones and little Gabby and all of that, I did say like the five has unionized. Like it did have yes. that vibe to it. And so she's kind of their labor representative on some level. No, no, exactly that. So, so part is practical. And then it's, I love uh, how she intersects with the room a little. Like, uh, especially with all my thinking of Exodus. And like, there's some, when Exodus uh, met Hope back in, um, back circa, it was an X Men legacy. It, uh, well, first it was in when she was a baby in Messiah Complex. Oh, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, no, yes, when you met her as like a person who's got a brain to talk to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, that's an interesting relationship. So, you know what I mean? Like, the the, the mutant, you know, Exodus' weird mutant Catholicism and Hope as his literal messiah. That's like, okay, that's something interesting. You know, like, and that, that's kind of the way part of it. And I think they're probably the main core thing. So the personality relationship, the, the sheer prickiness of Hope, what it said for Kokoa, and the young versus old of it. Yal Tavar writes, Sinister salutations to you both, Connor and Kieran. Having read the Utopia Days Everything is Sinister arc up to Immortal X-Men number one, Kieran Sinister is one of the most egotistical loud bitches around, giving Charles and Emma a run for their money. Was there any big figure in real life from whom Kieran drew inspiration for Sinister's personality, whether in fiction or living people? Being a mutant basically is camp already, so standing out as a camp classic is a pretty big accomplishment. Suffice it to say, I'm excited Kieran's got the biggest X book around right now and can only wait to see where it's all going next. Best, Yael. That's a tricky... I'm trying... What was I trying to essay originally? I mean, I guess it was wild. It's an Oscar Wilde or like Noel Coward yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of sensibility to it. It's a comedy of manners kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, there's the, uh, his voice is more modern now. Yeah. Uh, and like, when I was doing it, it's more retro. Yeah. Like, it was deliberately mannered. Well, because you were doing a Victoriana riff. Exactly. So that was kind of like, uh, I think it was like, you know, this, the slightly camp 19th century. Mm-hmm. Yes, and Wild is definitely, I think, the, probably the main bit. But a lot of it just felt like, I mean, even, um, oh, I forgot the guy's name. Even like George, it's like George Boyd Shaw. Yeah. Sure. Like, the kind of, the, the, the playfulness of language to him. I mean, he's almost, I've got the sudden image of his, oh, I've got the name now. See, this, this is literally. You're not, yeah, you're not good queen. at that, huh? I'm really bad at names. Uh, the the idiot uh, rich person and his butler. 
Uh, cheese and Worcester. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, give me a sec, give me a sec, give me a sec. Like when he's being not self-aware, there's a bit of Worcester to Sinister. Without, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that's it's a mix of being very clever, but also having that, that bit where he just misses stuff. So it's a little bit goofy. Yeah. No, and there is definitely like a British comedy vibe. Like um, there's a little bit of like, are you being served a little bit? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Like the Sinister clone relationship. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the comedy of manners. I think that's very key as well. Yeah. Yeah, like carry on sinister also is sort of like what a lot of your sinister work. Well, that's that, that's what, if we kill sinister, bring him back again. It's the carry on <laughs> carry sinister. On sinister. Last question. Mike Layton writes, Dear Connor and Mr. Gillen, Kieran, I was stunned when you took Mr. Sinister, a character I remembered only from growing up watching the X-Men cartoon series, and gave him such a personality. Immortal X-Men number one is a perfect balancing act of camp and terror. To any prospective comics creator, what is your advice in writing someone as irredeemable as Mr. Sinister without making him so horrible that it makes the character toxic for readers? I think that a lot... I think we've sort of talked indirectly about yeah, this. Yeah, and I thought that was a good like thing to end on because it's sort of the heart of the question, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely like, I say, choosing stuff which people could approach abstractly, even when talking about horrific stuff, mm-hmm. that's helpful because there's like, you talk like Sabretooth. Right. You know, Sabretooth is very hard because his... His crimes are so real. Yeah, and not even just even his crimes, his, um, like the threat, there's always the implicit threat he's about to do it again. Yes, like that's why Sabretooth is so horrific in that way, which is very, which can be really uncomfortable. Yeah. And that's what he is as a character. So in the case of like Sinister, you've got to be that. The classic way to make a villain likable is surrounded by people worse than them. Mm-hmm. You know, so like if you, I mean, if this is a storyline. It's like if I was that. That's how the Godfather works. Like if I was going to be a, a Don, I would be like to be the, like this guy. I wouldn't be like to the upper back of the mafia bosses. That's not quite sinister at all. What is just like the abyss horror of it? And I suppose it's the delight. I think it's the glee with which he approaches evil that is just fun. Like, the reason why your Sinister resonates in a way that the Weapon X Sinister doesn't, for example, is that there is a playfulness and a fun factor to it that feels... It's not just... I mean, again, it goes to the deliberate versus naive camp question. Like, he is doing a performance, but also, like, this just is who Sinister is to some extent. And it's fun, and it's okay to, like, let a bad guy be fun, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm trying to work out the phrases, because I, I definitely i am close to something I don't believe. So everyone listens to this, really take this a big pinch of salt. But there's a still thrill to just seeing someone being really bad. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and bad not in a, in a if you made it safe enough so to be bad, because it's if it's abstract enough to, oh, they're being bad, but we know they're being bad. Right, but like no one is actually cloning himself into horses, right? Like, so. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's abstract and removed enough that you can just lean into, this person has no remorse, no moral compunction, and there's something kind of captivating and hilarious about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you mentioned and the Selena bit as well. These yeah. Are, that's a certain school of villain where it's fun. And it, you're not... And it's sort of, definitely the trick with Sinister is balancing the fear and the, the fun of it. Because mm-hmm. you don't want to make him too fun either. Because otherwise it becomes... I mean, he's basically Deadpool with a PhD if you push him too far. Right. So he definitely has a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> it's tri- like, honestly, it's like one of these questions where, like, I don't think it boils down that to a simple answer. There's an X factor, one might say, or an Essex factor, yes. if you want to call it that. It's almost like you cut a line. You go, mm-hmm. is this too much? So I'm, I'm writing in Judgment Day at the moment, and it's like, you know, I don't think you can make a joke here. Because mm. I think that's just going to derail the scene. Like, and that's the kind of, like, as a, somebody writes, I mean, Immortals a dense book. Like, there's a lot of dark, Neo-Claremontism, as I keep on saying. Yeah. But even then, I'm cutting stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm cutting stuff, that, and good material, I think. Because it's like, no, I think I need to hit the tone slightly different here. 
And it's a question of like being when being clever isn't, isn't clever at all. You don't want to be overly clever because then it's pedestrian. Yeah. I mean, edit, darling, edit is the thing I always <laughs> say to myself. <laughs> and you can imagine so- a sinister saying that to himself. Yeah, I sure someone, can. Someone's edit, darling, edit. Yeah. <laughs> well, Kieran, thank you so much for being my guest. I would love for you to take an opportunity to plug anything you want to plug and tell listeners, I'm sure they know, but where to follow you online and whatnot. Uh, great. Um, I plug Immortal X-Men, which is out. Uh, Judgment Day is uh, the event I'm writing this summer, which is coming out soonish. I think I actually... Does it kill you that it's spelled American style? You made a joke about it in Immortal One. <laughs> yeah, all my all my original documents have had the Judgment, right? Yeah, which would like makes yes. more sense than our version. So it's I get yeah, it. But... it... Exactly. But you know, you guys have colours and things, which doesn't make a lick of sense. Yeah. So we, you know. Yeah, that, I like it. I like that pretentious O-U-R kind of thing, but it does not really yes, make it. Verily and shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm doing some more, like Eternals is sort of finishing me an S-ad, but we're kind of doing a bunch of like issues during Judgment Day, like the Death to the Mutants. Stuff. Is that the end of your run on that? Yeah, well, me and, it's basically me and S-ad finishing, so mm-hmm. let's just stop there, and during Judgment Day we'll be doing what we're doing, as in these various issues. Most importantly, I guess, uh, I'm doing a Kickstarter at the moment, uh, Die, the comic I did with Stephanie Hans, an RPG I've written over like the last five years. We're kickstarting to get it together. We've actually, we hit our funding in 16 minutes, so go knows. There's some really good stuff there. Uh, I mean, there's a video at the top where me and Grant did it and we all got COVID to make that video. <laughs> so for God's sake, uh, support us. Yeah, we actually recording this a little bit later than we planned to. Like people are like, when is Cerebro coming back? I'm like, Kieran has COVID. So give me a second <laughs> to... I didn't want you like coughing and sneezing on the, on the yeah. mic, you know? Also wanted you to get some rest. In that order, it's like... <laughs> yeah, first, first so- I'm concerned about the audio. <laughs> Second of all, he's ill. And you follow me online, Kieran Gillen, anyway. I'm on Twitter, though. I don't read it as much as I used to. Simply can't. <laughs> it's yeah, it's like, it breaks my brain. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it's bad I for lose us. Sleep, but... It's really bad for us. Yeah. Uh, especially now I need my sleep, especially. Like, I yeah. can't afford to lose sleep right. worrying about random things. KieranGillen.com basically links to everything. The best thing is my newsletter, so click on that, and you'll get me talking nonsense to you every week or so. It's a great newsletter. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the merch store, the Discord server, and much, much more at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. A new version of that is coming. I was going to get that all set up during the hiatus, but I was too busy at my actual job. Uh, so I did not do that, but it's coming. <laughs> You can send your questions to Cerebro at CerebroCast at gmail.com. As I said, questions are now closed for Thunderbird and Dr. Cecilia Reyes, but are still open for Al Ewing on Abigail Brand. And I'll be announcing the next four characters in the Thunderbird episode next week. Thank you, as always, for your support. If you would like to materially support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash CerebroCast. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier, you will receive exclusive secret file bonus episodes and an ad-free version of every episode the moment it goes up. The Patreon really helps me continue to do this show. It's a, a huge, huge help, and the support means the world to me. So thank you to everybody who does that. I'm excited to be back. Season three is going to be a wild ride. I've already booked, like, God, into September, I think. It's a lot going on. So (laughs) I'm excited to share it all with all of you. Until next time, thank you for listening, and bye. Goodbye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. 
only hope is X-Men.